So last year, alhamdulillah, we finished the first, almost the first 15 juz or bars of Quran. But I actually skipped one surah, which was surah number 17, surah al-Isra, otherwise known as surah Bani Israel, because we wanted to do surah al-Kahf last year. So that means that this year, we are first going to begin, inshallah, with surah number 17, surah al-Isra and Bani Israel. And we will be skipping Surah Kahf because we did it last year. And then we will continue on to Surah Maryam. So Surah Al-Isra is known as Surah Al-Isra and Surah Bani Israel. Al-Isra refers to the night journey of Sayyidina Rasulullah when Allah SWT took him from Masjid Al-Haram in Makkah Mukarramah. Bait al-Maqaddas from Masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. It's also known as Surah Bani Israel because most of the rest of the Surah actually is addressing the Bani Israel. And even this first incident about recounting to them the incident of Isra is also primarily for the purpose of addressing the Bani Israel. Subhanallah asra bi abdihi laylam min al-Masjid al-Harami ila al-Masjid al-Aqsa. Subhan means that glory be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, praise be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Who took his abd, his servant and slave. Asra means to take by night, to transport by night, to take by night. Probably better in English we would say transported by abdihi, transported his servant Laylan by night. From Masjid al-Haram to Masjid al-Aqsa. Alladhi barakna hawlahu. That same Masjid al-Aqsa. Which Allah SWT says that we have sent our blessings. Upon its surroundings. The nuriyahu. Why was this done? So that Allah Ta'ala says. So that we may show him. Min ayatina. We may show Nabi Kareem Sallallahu from our signs. Innahu indeed Allah SWT. Huwa he. As-sami al-basir. Is all hearing. And all seeing. Alright. Then only one ayah is going to refer to this incident. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to begin another set of topics. First thing that is very interesting is that in the entire Quran, only this ayah talks about the Isra. It's all of the things that you've heard about Nabi Karim Sassam going to Baitamakandas, that the Anbi are there, that he leaves them in Salah that he went on an animal called Barak, all of that is to be found in Sahih Hadith. So the first thing we realize from this is that you need the Hadith to understand Quran. Otherwise you will not be able to make any sense of what this verse means. Now you can understand it because you have been taught the meanings of those Hadith in the form of stories that were told to you when you were children or growing up by your parents or your teachers or educators, but to pretend you had never heard any of those stories, you would not have any of that information, you hadn't read the Hadith, you would just have a Qur'an. If you were to take a Qur'an-only approach to Islam, you would have no idea what this verse means. You would not understand. Even Allah SWT here has not even said that as the Prophet If you take just the literal translation of Quran, it said, Glory be to Allah SWT who transported his servant by night. Which servant that is, you have no idea who it is, because the Quran is not telling you that that Abd is Sayyidina Rasulullah 
why that took place, the Quran doesn't tell you that. What happened in Masjid al-Aqsa, Quran al-Karim is not telling you that. So this is one theme that I used to do with you last year also, every now and then to show you how much you need the Hadith and Sunnah to understand Quran al-Karim. Perhaps somebody would ask this rational question, that well, why doesn't Allah SWT mention it? Because the way you have been and we, way you have been raised and we were taught is that this is a very major incident where some rather incredible things happened. So actually, what you realize is yes, some very major things are not mentioned in Quran. This is just one of many examples. How to pray Salah is not mentioned in Quran, right? So actually, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has deliberately not mentioned many major things in Quran to re-emphasize over and over again the importance of Nabuwa, the importance of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that in order to come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you need the book of Allah, yani Quran and you need the messenger of Allah Sayyidina Rasulullah You cannot understand one without the other. If somebody was to take hadith only approach and say I don't follow Quran that would also be ridiculous. And for someone to take a Quran only approach that is also ridiculous. The second thing which is technically not being mentioned here, but all of you know there is a second step in this event, which is known as the Miraj, which is not even being alluded to in this verse. In only one place in Quran al-Kareem, which is Surah al-Najm, which you can even open that up, uh, Surah al-Najm, verses 13, this is Surah number 53, verses 13 onward. Very briefly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions Miraj. In other words, I thought I would show you that the, the Miraj is also only mentioned in one place in Quran. And if you have it in front of you, you would see, when it comes up on the screen, that there, one of the only things that is really mentioned is Sidr al-Muntaha, which I will explain in a little bit, that, Allah, that Sayyidina Rasulullah saw Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is also mentioned there. But otherwise, all of the other details about the incident of Miraj are also to be found in Quran al-Karim. Uh, sorry, also to be found in the Hadith of Nabi Karim sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So, although Allah subhanahu devoted only one ayat to this topic here and a few small ayat in Surah Najm, verses 13 and onward, yes, there it is. No, yet. I will, I will read the hadith out to you, alright, so we get a complete picture of what happened. But before I do so, a couple of comments on this verse. First here, Allah subhanahu wa is answering a criticism that many modernists and secularists have made, and they thought that this was just a dream. In other words, that Sayyidina Rasulullah did not actually, literally, physically make the journey from Makkah Mukarramah to Jerusalem, and he did not physically go up into Jannat. Why did they think that? Is there any verse of Quran that says it is a dream? No. Is there any hadith from Sayyidina Rasulullah that says it is a dream? No. Their own akal and the particular way of following their akal, the dictates of logic, rationality, empiricism, that tells them that it was a dream. So it shows you also one fundamental flaw that a person's akal alone, what in Arabic we call akal-e-mahaz, naked intellect, 
cannot tell you the meaning of Quran. But it's amazing that they choose to discard all the hadith and instead put forth their akal without being substantiated by a single ayah or a single hadith and they suggest it is a dream. Now one way you can answer that from Quran is this very first word, Subhan. If it was just a dream that the Prophet ﷺ had, then there's nothing amazing about that. Subhan means glory to that being who is amazing. Subhan means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is incredibly amazing and does things that are miraculous and amazing and in fact are unimaginable, inconceivable, unfathomable beyond the confines of logic and rationality. And if it was just a dream, there's nothing special about that. There's no need to say Subhan. Second, the way Allah Ta'ala then says, Asrabi Abdihi Laylan, that Allah Ta'ala transported. So in Arabic grammar, the fa'il, Asra is a verb. The fa'il or the subject of that verb is Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So the doer of the action is Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. When a person dreams, that's their own dream. They are the dreamer. So Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is saying in Quran that He transported His servant and slave, Yani Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam, to Baytul Maqaddas. So that's not a dream. That's not a dream. Yes, because it is something that is not normally physically possible to go to Baytul Maqaddas and then go all the way up to Jannah and back all in one night. So yes, it's something only Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala could have done. And actually, once you have Iman, there's another type of logic and rationality, by the way, that doesn't come from Aql and Mahaz, that comes within the world of Iman. For example, once you have Iman, that Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala kulli shayin kadir, has power over everything, with that tenet of Iman, then underneath that tenet of Iman, it's completely logical and rational and acceptable that Allah Subhanahu could make this happen. Because He is that being who has power over everything. Even if somebody was to tell you in some type of science fiction, fantasy, comic world, that there is an all-powerful being, so you would say, okay, all-powerful means that that being can do anything. And then if you were asked, could that being take a person from one place to the other and take them up? so high and far away and out of the physical universe and bring them back in one night, you would say, of course, logically and rationally, that being who has power to do anything and everything, of course they can do that. So there is a world of akal. That doesn't mean Islam does nothing of akal. Islam places akal under iman, mahtah to iman in Quran, and then you can operate on the basis of akal. So within the world of iman, this is a completely rational thing to believe in. So the Qur'an al-Kareem, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, due to many of the miracles of Qur'an, one miracle is that not only does it answer the objections of the disbelievers at the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah but it has embedded in it the response and answer to disbelievers or naysayers or doubters that would come all the way until the Day of Judgment. Next thing is that here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used the word Abd for Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu Why? This was also another ishaan that the Prophet journey, this journey that takes place, Isra'an Miraj, is not on the basis of his nabuwa. It's not part of his kamalat of nabuwa. It's not because of his prophetic ability or his prophetic power. No. In this manner he is a complete Abd, servant and slave the entire journey from start to end happened entirely out of the power and will and wish and decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then generally, 
about the word Abd, this is a word that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has used in Quran al-Kareem, throughout Quran al-Kareem for Anbiya. And many times we have explained to you as well, Ashadunna Muhammadan Abduhu wa Rasulu, that Sayyidina Rasulullah is first and foremost the Abd, the servant and slave and devoutful worshipper of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And second, he is a last and final prophet and messenger. And this is why in our deen, this word Abd is extremely beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Once a person, Sahaba asked Sayyidina Rasulullah, what are the most beloved names that you could name your children? And the Prophet said that Allah Ta'ala's favorite names are Abdullah and Abdul Rahman. Means the word Abd. This is the favorite name. This is the most beloved way that Allah Ta'ala wishes a human being to be known and called upon even in terms of their personal name that they are the servant and slave of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And then it comes in a date that once an angel came to Sayyidina Rasulullah he saw someone asked him a question that would you like to be a Nabi who is a king like perhaps Sayyidina Sulaiman al-Islam or would you like to be a Nabi who is a slave so the angel Jibreel was also there Sayyidina Rasulullah turned to Sayyidina Jibreel and asked for advice it's not because the Prophet didn't naturally want to be an Abd but it's because the Prophet was not sure in this matter, what is it that Allah Ta'ala would prefer for me? His own preference was to be a Nabi who was an Abd. But he wanted to submit his preference and give the answer according to Allah Ta'ala's preference. And he didn't know what Allah Ta'ala's preference was. And because he knew that the angel Jibreel is that angel who has met all the prophets, knows the stories and histories of all the prophets, has witnessed the relationship between Allah Ta'ala and all the prophets. So he asked angel Jibreel, so the angel Jibreel said, Abd, <laughs> you should take the choice of Abd. So Sayyidina Rasulullah then told that other angel who had come with that question from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I choose to be a Nabi who is an Abd. And if you see that in terms of material wealth and worldly lifestyle on this earth, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not bestow Sayyidina Rasulullah with a kingdom, worldly kingdom like that of Sayyidina Sulaiman salam, but actually Sayyidina Rasulullah was a very simple, humble life of the servant and slave of Allah subhanahu wa Then Sayyidatana Ummul Mu'mineen Sayyidatana Aisha radiallahu anh, she narrates that after this question and answer then Sayyidina Rasulullah this is where one of the sunnahs of eating comes that the Prophet never used to eat leaning back. He would always eat in such a position that he was not reclining on a chair or on a cushion and he would always sit in such a way why? Because he said, from now on I must eat like a slave and I must sit like a slave. Allahu Akbar. It means that the concept of being abd is not just about ibadah, it's not just about worship, it's also about how a person carries themselves, holds themselves, projects themselves, presents themselves, and that is the way Sayyidina Rasulullah understood what it means to be an abd or a servant and slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa is the proper name for Bayt Al-Muqaddas in Jerusalem. Literally, Al-Aqsa means the furthest, the masjid which lies at the furthest reach. Some say that means that from Makkah Mukarramah, there are two major masjid, Masjid Al-Nabwi in Medina Munawwara and Masjid Al-Aqsa in, uh, in Jerusalem. And relatively then, Masjid Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem is the one that lies the furthest away from Masjid Al-Haram. These three masajid 
are the three haram or the three sacred precincts and sanctuaries in Ardeen. There is no other fourth holy place. As in Ardeen we recognize the sanctity and sacredness of only three houses of worship. And that's why many ulama have said in terms of visiting masajid, you're only allowed to undertake a journey. Specifically, if you want to undertake a journey to visit a masjid, you're only supposed to do that for one of these three masajid. So, for example, if somebody in England said, I want to travel to Lahore just to see Bajai Masjid and to pray in Bajai Masjid, Lahore, we would say, no, the deen does not tell you to do that. But if there is a place that you want to go just to set foot in it and just to pray in it, there are three places like that. That's Makkah Mukarramah, Medina Manawara and Beitul Mukandas. However, if a person comes to a city for some other reason, then there is no harm in them visiting the more old or gracious massages in that city. But that cannot be the sole reason for which a person makes a journey. Barakna Hawlahu that Allah SWT says we sent our blessings on the Hawl, which literally means the surroundings, precincts, environs of Baitamukan. This this can be understood in a number of ways. The first is spiritually speaking, that the ground around Baitamukandas was spiritually fertile. And this is why you find that this whole area of the Middle East and Jerusalem was a place where a vast number of Anbiya came. A vast number of adyan or deens and books and scriptures and wahi were sent to humanity. So it's spiritually fertile ground. Second meaning is also physically, physically speaking, the soil and land in that area in terms of its fertility, its vegetation, its fruit, the flowing rivers, is also have a lot of physical barakah in it. Then as far as this ummah goes, like I mentioned, Beit al-Muqaddas is one of the three harams. It was also the Qibla of many earlier Anbiya. And it was also the first Qibla of our Nabi Akram Wasallam and the early Sahabi Akram So it is a place where indeed Allah Ta'ala has put a lot of barakah in it. Then Allah Ta'ala mentions one reason, one reason why Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala did the uh, took Nabi Akram Sallallahu on this night journey, the Nuriyahu min ayatina, so that Allah Taala could show him, show the Prophet some of the signs of Allah Subhanahu Now, what those signs are, those I'm going to tell you in a moment when I read out these hadith to you. There are some signs that take place on the night journey, and there are some signs that will take place in the miraj, or what is sometimes called ascension. Now, sometimes people ask a question generally about this event. That why didn't Allah SWT take the Prophet directly up from Makkah Mukarramah? Wouldn't that have been more fadila? Wouldn't that have showed the primary and greater merit of Makkah Mukarramah? So one of the reasons the Mufassirin and Muhaddithin have suggested is that actually Allah SWT wanted to show the importance of continuity in our deen. That Sayyidina Rasulullah we don't believe in another God and another Prophet. No. The God of Quran... Allah SWT is the same God of the Torah, same God of the Injil, to make it clear to the Bani Israel that this is not some distinct, discreetly separate religion and God and book and line of prophets. This is the same Allah SWT who sent all of those deens, the same Allah SWT that sent all of those anbiya, so to establish that nisbat and tasalsal and continuity between Sayyidina Rasulullah and all of the prophets gone past, that's why Allah SWT first took the Prophet to Beit al 
And as you're going to hear shortly in the hadith, and all of you already know, most of you would know, that Sayyidina Rasulullah was the imam of all of the anbiya, formally became their imam and their nabi in salah, because each and every one of them, not only did they pray behind him, but each and every one of them also recited the shahud behind him. Which is going to be slightly confusing for you, because actually that takes place first, and then the person goes up to miraj and then gets the salah. So I'll explain that to you as well. Alright? So this is the reason, this is the answer to that question, that why did the Prophet ﷺ not go straight up from Makkah Now I'm going to read to you, and it's going to take a bit of time, but some of these very long hadith about this incident of Isra and Miraj. And first, interestingly, they're quite long hadith, and most of them are mentioned in Sahih Muslim and Sahih Bukhari. A few are mentioned in the Mu'tav, Imam Malik, and some other books of narration. So although normally we would not be spending so much time on one ayah, but because this is a major incident of our deen, and like I mentioned to you, it only comes up really in this ayah and a handful of other ayah later, so I'm going to do this in detail today, inshallah. So Sayyidina Anas ibn Malik narrates, and this has been transmitted by Imam Muslim in his Sahih, that Sayyidina Rasulullah when he came back, he described in detail this incident to the Sahabah as follows. Number one, the burak was brought to me. It was a long white animal that was larger than a donkey but smaller than a mule. So first thing you should know that it wasn't a horse. Because if it was a horse, the Prophet would have just said it was a horse. It was some other type of animal who was probably similar to horse, mule, donkey type of animals. So you can say a steed, right? And whose size is like that was larger than a donkey but smaller than a mule. And that none of us really understand anymore because all we know, if I said to you, larger than a cultist and smaller than a Camry, that's what you understand. But larger than a donkey and smaller than a mule, we have no idea. Most of us, that mule is larger than a donkey. We didn't even know that much, right? But it was some animal in that, right? By the way, this word barak can come from either whiteness or the flash of lightning. So you can imagine some type of white, blazing fast, lightning fast steed. The name was given for this nisbat. Right? Its step was as far as the eyes can see. What Nabi Karim meant was that every single step, and remember this steed would have been galloping, mean running, but every single step he took was as far as the Prophet could see. So imagine if you're standing on the plain horizon and the last, the end that you can see your mount takes one step and reaches there. And then again, the end that you can see takes one step and reaches there. So if you were to estimate that, and I don't know, but how far can the human eye see on clear weather, end of horizon, probably hundreds of miles. And if every step, this steed travels hundreds of miles, then again, within the realm of logic and rationality, once you accept by your iman, these hadith, then you can logically see at that speed, and covering those distances in one step, Sayyidina Rasulullah is going to reach Beit al-Muqaddas within a matter of seconds or minutes. Right? Because from Makkah Muqarram to Jerusalem is not so far. So this is how the Prophet described his journey. Right? He says, I mounted it, I rode on top of it, and it took me to Masjid al-Aqsa. So here you have Sayyidina Rasulullah also his Kamal Iman and Tawakkal in Allah SWT. That's slightly not being, this between the lines, Right? 
he had no idea when he sat on that animal where it was taking him, but Allah subhanahu wa must have sent revelation to him that you were meant to sit upon this animal, and this animal is going to take you somewhere. So he says that I took, went to Masjid al-Aqsa, and this is a place that the Muslim had never been to before. And then he said, I bound it to the same ring, so it had mm, reins, and I bound that animal to the same ring which the Anbiya used to bind their animals. I entered the masjid and I performed two rakah salah. So what happens here, actually, let me just mention this part, is salah has been revealed to the Prophet There is an optional type of salah that the Prophet has even shared with the Sahaba and the Ummah is praying at this time. But formally salah has not been made fard at five times, but the method of salah has been revealed and the practice of salah is taking place. And because Nabi Karim knew and had heard about Masjid al-Aqsa, from Allah subhanahu wa before and recognized it to be a masjid so the first thing he did which is a sunnah is to pray what we call salat tahiyat al-masjid that whenever you enter the masjid you literally means to greet the masjid you perform an initial act of ibadah of offering two rakahs salat then the angel Jibreel salam, appeared and the Prophet that he offered me and different now rawayat they're going to mention different things he offered the Prophet two glasses some rawayat say three glasses one had wine in it, one had honey in it, and one had milk in it. And Sayyidina Rasulullah chose to drink the one which had milk in it, upon which the angel Jibreel said, you have chosen the natural way. This has been mentioned by the Muhaddisin that milk is the fitrat of insan. Because every human baby, when it is born, suckles and drinks the milk of their mother. So milk contains a nourishment for humanity. Here in the Hadith of Bukhari, I'll explain it a bit more because the honey part is mentioned over there as well. Then the Prophet continues and says, And we then proceeded to the heavens. On the first heaven, now Allah subhanahu wa mentioned this, that there are seven levels of Jannah. Now one thing I also want to be clear is that Jannah does not exist in the sky or the atmosphere or on top of planet earth or in outer space. There is a physical realm, which is planet Earth, the solar system, Milky Way galaxy, and the entire physical universe. Beyond the physical universe lies another realm. You can view it as physically beyond, but it's beyond space. It's beyond time, right? So it's not really physically beyond. But it's in a different dimension or plane of existence. You can call it, if you want to use a slight biblical English term, the celestial realm, the heavenly realm. That's where Sayyidina Rasulullah went. So Barak is not a space shuttle that is taking the Prophet up on top of the atmosphere and the Prophets are floating in some atmospheric or supra-atmospheric space. No. Outside the entire physical universe. That journey, now don't think about it in a physical way, that journey doesn't mean that you have to cross all the planets, leave the solar system, leave the Milky Way. No, it doesn't mean like that. Because it's not a physical journey in that sense. You're just going to exit. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have created that exit anywhere. It doesn't have to be at the quote-unquote physical ends of the physical universe. That rupture from the physical universe and entering into the celestial realm could take place at any point. So, when that happens, then you enter the Jannah. So, there are seven levels of Jannah. Now, here the Prophet mentions in great detail, both here and this is the exact same detail in the Hadith in Bukhari, so I'll skip it later when it comes. On the first level of Jannah, the Prophet says, On the first level of Jannah, I met Sayyidina Adam, 
On the second level of Jannah, I met Sayyidina Isa salam and Sayyidina Yahya salam. On the third level of Jannah, I met Sayyidina Yusuf salam. On the fourth level of Jannah, I met Sayyidina Idris salam. On the fifth level of Jannah, I met Sayyidina Harun salam. On the sixth level of Jannah, I met Sayyidina Musa salam. And on the seventh level of Jannah, I met Sayyidina Ibrahim salam. Now, different muhaddithin have talked about what does this does this have any significance? Which Nabi is present, which Nabi is absent? So for example, the most perhaps prominent Nabi who is absent from this list is Sayyidina Nuh salam, Considered from the Ulul Azam Anbiya, something I explained to you last year, he's absent from this list. Second, you don't really see any specific tertib, any sequence. It's not a sequence in terms of chronological order, because you first have Sayyidina Adam salam, then Sayyidina Isla So right there, that's the first prophet and the second to last prophet. Right? And then you have scattered other ones. It doesn't seem to be any sequence in terms of fadl or in terms of greatness because many muhaddithin veil that Sayyidina Isa salam or Sayyidina Musa salam or Sayyidina Ibrahim salam is the second greatest prophet. So that you could say that Sayyidina Ibrahim salam is on the seventh level but Sayyidina Harun salam is on the fifth level and no muhaddith or mufassir believes that Sayyidina Harun salam is avdal to either Sayyidina Isa salam or Sayyidina Adam salam. So this is something that Allah Ta'ala knows best. I do not feel that we can really present any reason to you at this. But it shows that Allah Ta'ala has His ways of doing things. And Allah Ta'ala's way of doing things is going to always be beyond our knowledge. Even the knowledge that He has revealed to us is not always going to enable us to understand every reason behind everything that He does. But this was the arrangement of the Anbiya whom Nabi Akrim met. After the seventh Jannah comes a place called Baytul Ma'mur. Baytul Ma'mur is like another Kaaba type thing you can imagine. Another house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the place where the angels do tawaf. And 70,000 continues that Sayyidina Ibrahim salam on the seventh Jannah was reclining against the Baytul Ma'mur. Right? Reclining against Baytul Ma'mur. Like imagine somebody reclining against Kaaba. Huh? So even more than that, reclining against Baytul Mamur. And then the Prophet said that I learned that every single day, 70,000 angels are allowed to come and do tawaf of Baytul Mamur, but they never get that chance again. It's a once in their eternal, they're also eternal beings, once in their eternal life that they will get to do that. So from this you get a nishara, imagine how many angels there must be that every single day get another 70,000 angels do tawaf on Baytul Mamur. And even from our own reckoning of history, how many billions and trillions and trillions of trillions of days have passed, and according to the reality of how many days have passed, only Allah Ta'ala knows, then you can just imagine how many almost, almost seemingly limitless creation there is of the angels. Then after Baytul Mamur, Nabi Karim continues, and I was taken to the Siddhatul Muntaha, which is mentioned in the other passage of Quran. What is Siddhatul Muntaha? Some, it's a tree. In English, some people translate this as the Lot tree. Some have translated it as the Jojoba tree. Right? Again, none of us are that familiar with botany and plant biology for us to really understand what that tree is, if there is such a likeness of it on this earth. On that, then the Prophet said that I saw that the leaves of this tree were as large as the ears of elephants, and the fruits of the tree were as large as jugs of water. 
And then the Siddhut Muntaha is at times enveloped by things that Allah Ta'ala has decreed to envelop it. And it changes form and color and becomes so beautiful that no creation can describe. Another hadith that is mentioned that golden, you can say something like butterflies, golden butterflies envelop Siddhut Muntaha. And another hadith is mentioned that limitless colors of butterflies envelop it. So what you can imagine say like a shimmering type of multicolored effect is something that is on that tree. Alright. Then he says that then the Biyakrim Sassam continues that at that juncture, at reaching the Sidrat Muntaha, after crossing the seven Jannat Betu Mamur at Sidrat Muntaha. By the way, what does this mean? Some Mohadisin have quoted hadith that Muntaha obviously means the end. So this is this is the climax that all of the actions and not that humanity does and all of the conversations that the angels have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they reach this point which is an apex and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hukam and command always emanates through this point this again begs the question that why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala use these mechanisms so actually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed that not just in the physical universe but also in the celestial heavenly realms things will have asbab and this is his way of operating, that he operates through asbab in everything. So, for example, one heavenly divine act is to send wahi on the hearts of the anbiya. Allah Ta'ala uses the sub of Jibreel Another act is to send some information or communicate to the angels. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala chooses for them to come to Siddhartha and to receive that information. So this is the way of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. One way that you can understand this is that there are two aspects to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One is His interrelation with creation. Whether that creation is humanity or angels. All of that Allah ta'ala has chosen the zahir of His relations with creation to take place through asbab. Because Allah ta'ala has made another relationship which is His batin relationship with creation that takes place without asbab. So for example, when Allah Ta'ala sends His hidayah on somebody's heart, that is direct. When Allah Ta'ala sends His rahmah on somebody, that is direct, without any sabab. When Allah Ta'ala sends His maghfirah and mercy and forgiveness on a person, that is direct. So when it pertains to the batin of a person, Allah Ta'ala has chosen to make that relationship without a sabab. But anything that has to do with the zahir, the outward, apparent, external Allah Ta'ala has chosen to use asbab for that, whether it's in this world or it's in the Akhirah. So for example, even in Jannah, when Allah Ta'ala wants to give the people of Jannah outward happiness and outward bounties, He uses asbab for that. Whether it's the fruits of Jannah, the rivers of Jannah, the palaces of Jannah, the rubies and marbles of Jannah, all of that are asbab, right? But when Allah Ta'ala wants to make the people of Jannah their hearts happy, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala will do that directly without asbab. And the same is true for the angels. So that is one way you can understand what this Siddhartha Muntaha is. So Sayyidina, to come back to the Hadith, Sayyidina Rasulullah says that when I reached that juncture of being at Siddhartha Muntaha, then Allah Ta'ala revealed to me what He willed. And this is something that Allah SWT has mentioned in Quran, that Allah SWT revealed to His Abd, whatever Allah Ta'ala revealed. So here, it's quite clear that the Prophet was giving the Sahaba a lot of detail, but here he kind of leaves it blank. <laughs> When he comes to this point, he says, And there Allah Ta'ala revealed to me whatever Allah Ta'ala will to reveal to me. He doesn't share it with Sahaba Ikram. 
So this also means that there are some things that Allah Ta'ala told Sayyidina Rasulullah which is not part of Quranic revelation and were not also part of his message or mission of Nabuwa that they make it into Sunnah. There are some other things also that only Allah Ta'ala and his Prophet know best. Which means that Nabi Kareem Nabuwa and his receiving revelation from Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala is not just about the hidayah that is to be given to humanity. There were other things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestowed on the Prophet And then, now when the Prophet passes this point, right, and then all of you know in other hadith that the angel Jibreel says that no one else can go past this point, right, that was that point, the Siddhat al-Muntaha point, then one of the things that happens is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals the 50 salah, right, and then as you know, right, the Prophet when he comes back, he comes back to Sayyidina Musa salam, and that's the sixth heaven. So what does it mean when he comes back in the seventh heaven? He passes Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam doesn't say anything. Then go back and get it reduced. He doesn't do that. But when he comes down to the sixth heaven, then Sayyidina Musa salam asks him that what happened? And he says, I got 50 salah. He says, go back. So the Muhaddisin commented on this also. That why didn't Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam say something? So they said that Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam, he is Khalilullah. He is the friend of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the friend loves what his beloved loves. So he, as the friend of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he would never think of changing it. But Sayyidina Musa alayhi he is Kalimullah. He loves to talk to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he loved for Nabi Akram what he loved for himself. So he wanted to send the Prophet back to talk to Allah ta'ala. <laughs> Allah Akbar. I mean, this is just the view of the Muhaddisin, right? Where they're enjoying these hadith and trying to figure out the raz or the secret subtleties in the hadith. Another reason they mention is that Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, the people who believed in him, in terms of the people who believed in his nabuwa, they were strong mu'mineen. They were firm on their tawheed and they listened to what the Prophet told them. So he didn't have any such experience which would make him think that you would have to get the number of salah reduced. As opposed to, if you remember the entire first few days last year, in Surah Baqarah, Allah Ta'ala made clear over and over and over again that Sayyidina Musa salam, the type of mu'mineen that he had, the ones who believed in his nabuwa, kept questioning, 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 of Sayyidina Musa salam at this time, unko sahaba ko He didn't know about sahaba ikram, that these were people who, if their Prophet told them, would do 500 salam. Right? He thought that maybe Nabi Akram may get followers like I had. That's what they say. Al-Mu'min umir'atul mu'min, that everyone does qiyas on themselves. Right? So he thought if he's going to get there's no way as a follower because his life experience told him that believers are not going to do that. So that's the second reason Muhaddisin say that that's why Sayyidina Musa told him to go back. So when he asked the, but the first point right was that because Sayyidina Musa asked Sayyidina Ibrahim Musa the, the first thing that the Muhaddisin said about Khalil and Kalimullah is because Sayyidina Ibrahim Musa didn't even ask the Prophet what happened. But Sayyidina Muslim, because he loved the conversations with Allah, he asked, Kya <laughs> What did you talk to and what did Allah Ta'ala say to you? So then the Prophet shared with him. Now he didn't share with him that other stuff that he revealed to me what he revealed. He shared to him this thing about the Salah. And so then Sayyidina Muslim, as you know in this way, he says that Sayyidina Muslim told me, the Prophet says that Sayyidina Muslim told me and he told the Prophet to return to Allah SWT to request that the number be reduced, the number of Salah be reduced because the Ummah would not be able to bear this burden. And then he said that he had experienced that same thing with the Bani Israel. So then the Prophet continues and says, and I returned to 
my Rabb and requested that Ya Rabb lessen the number for my Ummah that Allah Ta'ala reduced the number then I went to say Musa Sam and then he told him then he told me to go back and this process continues until they are left with five Salah but amazingly even after the five right well when Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala tells the Prophet Sam that it's five then Allah Ta'ala said Ya Rasulullah calling the Prophet Sam by name Ya Muhammad Sallallahu these five Salah are ordained I shall now, Allah Ta'ala says that I will give the reward of 10 salah for every one of these so that they total the reward of 50 salah. So my decree has changed by your asking. My decree was actually because I don't need the salah. My decree was that I wanted to be able to reward your ummah with 50 salah every day. Now because you have asked me, I will reduce the number that they pray to five, but my decree still stands, nothing can change my decree, they will still get the sawab of fifty. The meri bhi baat ban or aapki baat bhi ban right? That Allah SWT will still give those fifty sawab. And if you think about what we were saying last night, so then if ordinary times for every salah you get fifty, uh, for every salah you get ten, Every salah you get the reward of 10. So every day you actually got the reward for 10 salah. Sorry, every day when you pray 5 salah, you actually get the reward for 50 salah. And if in the month of Ramadan, every fard is 70 times, to 70 times 50 is 3,500. So that person who prays 5 salah in Ramadan gets the ajr and sawab for 3,500 salah. Allah Akbar. This is where you're supposed to use your akal. <laughs> Right? 3,500 Salah. So then Allah Ta'ala then mentioned another thing. Another gift he gives to the Prophet Allah Ta'ala told the Prophet that whoever intends a good deed will receive the reward of that good deed even if they're unable to do it. So means another thing Allah Ta'ala said, not only will I give 10 Sawab for one Salah, I will give one Sawab for one good niyyah. And that person who is able to follow through on that good intention and do the good deed, I will give them ten sawab for that one amal. And then that person who intends a sin but doesn't do it, they will get no punishment, they will not be recorded a bad deed for that bad intention. And if they go ahead and carry out that bad intention and do that act of evil, they will only get one bad deed written on their record. So you get a reward for a good intention, no punishment for a bad intention. You get ten rewards for a good act and you get one demerit for a bad act. So this is nothing that Allah sponsor revealed to the Prophet. So then Sayyidina then I returned and then I told Sayyidina that the number had been reduced to five. He told me to return to Allah and ask for a further reduction. And then the Prophet this time I told him that I was too ashamed to return to Allah Subhanahu so many times. Why? Because Allah said the five equals fifty. When Allah Ta'ala gave that fadl, gave that karam, gave that rahmah, now the Prophet realized it does not befit me to go back to Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. Alright. Now, what another hadith, and a different hadith from Sayyid Muslim that talks a bit about this Isra, that when Sayyidina, Sayyidina Abu Hurairah narrates, that when Sayyidina Rasulullah went to Masjid Al-Aqsa and the time came for Salah, the Prophet led the Anbiya in Salah. In another narration, the angels, they were all waiting. The Anbiya were sitting in rows, waiting for an Imam. And when the Prophet came, the angel Jibreel took the Prophet by the hand and put him in the position of the Imam and asked him and sort of put him forth to lead all of the Anbiya. Then after the Salah was over, uh, 
Sayyidina, uh, the angel Jibreel told the Prophet Sallallahu that all of these were all the Anbiya that Sayyidina Rasulullah that uh, these were all of the Prophets that Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala had ever sent on earth. So what does this mean? Another very important point is none of those false Prophets were there. Musaylam al-Kazab was not there and Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani was not there. Nor does he ever claim to have been there. He even accepts <laughs> that he wasn't there. So this is one clear proof that he's not a Nabi. And like I explained to you last year, you have to understand very clearly that anybody who believes that Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani is a prophet, a full prophet, a shadow prophet, a kind of prophet, a demi-prophet, a semi-prophet, anyone who believes that is a non-Muslim. And you should never give in to quote-unquote liberal propaganda that is wrong to call a Qadiani a non-Muslim. It is 100% correct, 100% appropriate to call a Qadiani a non-Muslim. Why? Because like I mentioned to you last year, religions are defined on the basis of the prophets they accept. Why do Jews call Christians non... Why do Christians call Jews non-Christians? Because they don't believe in the prophethood of Isa Islam. Right? Which prophet you believe and don't believe in puts you inside or outside a religion? That person who doesn't believe in Isa like the Jews, the Christians say you're not a Christian. If you believe in an extra prophet, that also puts you out of religion. Why do the Jews call Christians non-Jews? They believe in an extra prophet. They believe in Isa Why do Jews call you and me non-Jews? They said they believe in an extra prophet. They believe in the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, and there's a prophet we don't believe in. Now if a Jew calls me a non-Jew, there's nothing illiberal about that. That's a factual statement. It's 100% correct for them to call me a non-Jew. So Iqadiyani is a non-Muslim because they believe in an extra prophet. Right? Now second thing is that if Qadianis would do one thing, we are willing to grant them every single right that Islam grants to all non-Muslims. We can be as friendly and peaceful with them like we are with all the Jews and Christians we grew up in America and we study with and etc. Just accept that you're not a Muslim. This is the one mistake, these are the two big mistakes that the Qadianis make. Number one, they accept another prophet. But even that, we're not going to do anything to them. But they insist that they're still a Muslim. What does that mean? Why is it unacceptable? We don't understand that. They say, So no, if I allow themselves to call themselves a Muslim, if I allow that, I sanction that, if that means that they're Muslim, then what they believe in is Islam. And they believe in another prophet. And that cannot be Islam. Therefore, I cannot let them say they're Muslim. They cannot be allowed to say they're Muslim. I will tell you, in America, pe- which people idolize in this country as the bastion of liberalism and secularism, in New York City, I could not open a Baptist church, if I wanted to. I could not open up legally. The law would prevent me from opening a Baptist church. They say, because you're Muslim. If I say, okay, I only teach Baptism, maybe they will let me do it. But if in the name of baptism or Presbyterianism or Protestantism or Catholicism, I teach in that church that the Prophet Muhammad is a prophet, they will say no. They say you are not allowed to call yourself Catholic. You cannot put on the church, Catholic church, if you are teaching that Muhammad is a prophet. That's what the Americans will say. 
So now do you understand why we say that the Qadinis cannot have a masjid and call themselves Muslim? Because they're teaching something that's not Islam. Just like in America, we would not be allowed. They say, you can have a masjid. They would say, do what you are. Be honest. They say, why are you, why are you trying to open up a Catholic church? <laughs> and then inside the Catholic church say you believe in another prophet. Open up a masjid, you're free to do that. Now do you understand? This is the simple way for you to understand that all of that propaganda that they keep writing in this English language newspapers is nonsense. You should, people should be honest about what they believe. And on top of that, in any case, Mirza Ghulam Mehmet Khan, with my own eyes and written his work, he says that anybody who doesn't accept in my prophethood is an unbeliever. So it's a completely different religion, drawn on completely different boundaries. So yes, we are unbelievers in the Qadiani religion. And they are unbelievers in the Islamic religion. That's simple. Alright. So, important point was that Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Ghani was not there. <laughs> At the gathering of the one time in history, when all of the Anbiya were gathered, his name is not on that register. So that is another way for you to understand that he is not a Nabi in any way, shape or form. Alright. Another thing that Imam Bukhari has reported, and this is a very, very uh, profound hadith which many of the muhaddithin, ulama, awliya have commented upon, and it's going to be beyond actually our ability to do that in detail today. But Sayyidina Anaswadha narrates that before the incident of Miraj, that Sayyidina Rasulullah says that once I was near the Kaaba and I was lying down in a almost state of semi-consciousness, half awake, half asleep. And he says that three people came to me and they had a golden tray with them and that tray was filled with hikmah and iman, with wisdom and iman. And they cut open my breast, this is the incident of Shakti Sadr, they cut open my breast and they washed it with the, what they opened up, they washed it with the water of Zamzam and then they filled my chest with that wisdom and iman. Then they closed my breast. And then after that the incident of Miraj took place. Now what exactly happened? This is a long detailed story that many muhaddithin and awliya have commented upon. And many of our friends who only study hadith, they never like to touch this hadith. <laughs> and many other hadith like it because they have no idea what to do with these type of hadith in Bukhari and Muslim. So they have their abridged editions of Bukhari and Muslim because they have no idea what to say about this one. <laughs> right? Here I will just relate it to you to this incident that the Muhaddithin say that actually what happened was that Sayyidina Rasulullah was being prepared for this journey. Was being prepared for the zarf and the ability to handle the entry into Jannah. And specifically being prepared to handle the entry past Siddhatul Muntaha into the presence of Allah subhanahu wa Not because Nabi Karim Sallallahu Alaihi was not intrinsically capable of that, but you can imagine that he had been programmed to deal with humanity. And so they opened up his chest to reprogram him back to his original Nur so that he could enter into Jannah and enter the presence of Allah subhanahu wa Alright. Here there are a lot of other details here. About and I was originally thinking of reading it all to you, but obviously in Dorothy this year we're not going to be able to do that. Uh, 
Okay, one thing that we should mention is another day that is mentioned that all of you know that when the Prophet came back from the Mirage, right, the Quraysh mocked him and they said, how do you know and how can you believe in such a thing? So all of you know that Sayyidina Abu Bakr became a Siddiq when he testified that no, if my Prophet said so, he certainly said so. And then Allah Ta'ala replayed the scene of Masjid Al-Aqsa and Nabi Akram started describing the Masjid, the colors, the tiles, everything to those people. And from amongst them there were some Quraysh who for the purposes of business had been there and had seen it and then they realized that what the Prophet was saying was indeed true but even then they didn't accept Iman. And then another day that comes at Nabi Yusuf says, On the way, I saw even another caravan that was going, and they had a camel like this, and a camel of this color. And then when that caravan came, all of the details turned out to be true. But even then the Quraysh did not accept Imam. And this is something that is a very bad habit that the Quraysh had, and unfortunately some very stubborn, sort of unfriendly to deen believers even in Pakistan have, that even when you give them an answer, even when you explain to them the teaching of deen in a way that is irrefutable, that they can't refute it, even then they don't accept it. And this is a very bad habit to have. And so people should always be genuine and sincere. And when we learn the knowledge, we have to accept and admit that knowledge and we have to practice upon that knowledge. We cannot be stubborn and refuse to accept the things that Allah subhanahu wa and Nabi some have made clear in the Quran and Sunnah about our deen. So here there are many, many other ahadith and many, many other details about this event of Isra and Miraj and this is what Allah subhanahu is referring to over here. Verse number 2 onwards, وَأَتَيْنَا مُوسَ الْكِتَابِ Now here Allah subhanahu is saying, and means and also from another one of our signs, and the rubbed here now, what, why did Allah subhanahu put this thing first? Because these other passages that are about to come are mentioning details about what happened to Bani Israel, also things that the Prophet could not have known. Also, these these ayat in Quran are also proof of the Nabu of Nabi Akram because these are things he would not have known. Only Allah Ta'ala could have told him these things. So, the Spontanami gave Sayyidina Musa some the kitab, the scripture and the book. And we made that scripture and book that revealed to Musa a guidance for the Bani Israel. First and foremost, what? That they should not take other than me, any other than Allah Ta'ala, they should not take anyone as a guardian. And this is what Allah Ta'ala is indicating that this is the mistake they made. This is what they failed to do. They didn't accept Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala as their wakil. means they didn't have tawakkul in Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. They did not have trust and reliance in Him. So this is an ishara in Surah Baqarah. There was tafsil, detail. Here Allah Ta'ala is summing all of that up. That what is the nukta, what is the summary of all of the mistake that they made? They didn't accept Allah Ta'ala as their wakil. And this was something that was clear guidance that was given to them in the scriptures that in book that was revealed to Sayyidina Musa salam. So it's a lesson for us also. That's why it's in Quran that we can make if we want to save ourselves from the, all of the grave mistakes that the Jews did. We have to make sure that we make Allah Taala our wakil in each and every affair and all matters. That we have absolute trust, reliance, and dependent on Allah Subhanahu Taala. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls upon the Bani Israel, Zurriyata man hamalna ma'anuh, that, oh, you are the descendants of those people, you are the descendants of those whom we have put on board, yani in the boat, ma'anu with Nuh alayhi salam. Then, innuhu kana abdan shakura, and indeed he, Sayyidina Nuh alayhi salam, he was an incredibly grateful abd. So this is the second thing that they failed to do, they didn't do shukr. 
So two things, to make Allah Ta'ala our wakil, and number two, to become shakur, to be immensely grateful to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. This is the way, so what they were not, they didn't make Allah Ta'ala the wakil, and what should they have done? They should have been shakur. So these are two lessons for us as well. Then Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala mentions something, Kadena ala Bani Israel in Kitab, that we declared to the Bani Israel in that very same scripture, we told them in the revelation that we revealed to Musa Islam and we informed them that you are going to spread mischief and discord and sedition on earth twice. You're going to do it twice. And then you will surely become haughtily arrogant, extremely arrogant. So when the first of these two decrees came to pass, what was the first one? That they were going to spread that fitna, right? Spread a uh, facade twice on earth. So then Allah Ta'ala said, then we dispatched alaykum, we dispatched against you. Allah Ta'ala is addressing them directly. Ibadan lana, some servants who belong to us, some servants of ours. Ule ba'sin shadeed. And they are such servants who are possessing a strong force. Fajasu khilal al and they ravaged your homes. They combed and went through your homes. Means they ravaged your homes. Means they destroyed you. So what happened was there's a first incident that the Bani Israel spread mischief in this world, and then Allah Subhanahu wa sent some of His strong and powerful servants, which quelled their mischief. Interestingly, again. On this topic, these two times, there is no detail in Quran, and now watch this interestingly, there is no detail in any single hadith. The Mufassirun have called to the hadith and they write in their tafsir that no single hadith has given us these details that what were those two times, those two incidents, what were those two mischiefs, what were those forces that Allah Ta'ala sent to quell the Bani Israel. There is no mention of that anywhere in Quran and no mention of that in hadith. So when you come in the Qur'an across an ayah like that, what do you do? When the ayah like you're only going to come across an ayah like that when it's talking about history. And the way the Mufassirun then do that is then they write the tafsir based on the historical details that they find in a body of literature known as the Israeliyat. This is basically some remnants of the Torah and the Injil, also some remnants of early historical books and history is written of that time. So that is history then. That is not something you can say with yakin or with certainty. But it is something that maybe can help us understand this passage a bit better. So that we can try to get the lessons from this passage. That Allah Ta'ala wants us to get because He put it in Quran. So who were those forces? So there are four possibilities. So in one tafsir, ma'alum tanzil He goes deep into all the different possibilities that it could be, could not be, might have been. And he suggests that the first group that was sent against the Banisur were what he calls the Bakht al Nasr, which in Persian they call Nebuj al Nazar, and the second was Khardush. However, others have suggested there is one narration of Qatada who was a Tabi, but again he's not basing on Deeth, he must have read his own sources of Israeliyat. That no, the first incident was Jalut, who was sent, and then Dawud salam uh, slays him. And then again the Bani Israel spread mischief and the second time then Allah Ta'ala sent the Bukhti Nasr against them. So Allah Ta'ala knows best. 
right? Allah Ta'ala knows best, but apparently this happened to them twice. And this is something that Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala is reminding them of in Quran al Kareem. Alright. Wakana means and indeed it became a decree that came to pass. So once it happened the first time, it became a decree that came to pass. So then Allah Ta'ala says, then we gave back to you a turn of fortune alayhim against them. And then we allowed you to prevail against them. We restored your authority over against them. We allowed you to triumph once again. But and then Banina and then we helped you with wealth and money and with sons. And we made you akhtara nafira, we made you greater in number. Means we rebirthed your civilization. We gave you sons, can generally mean children and progeny, but here it does mean sons, right? Means fighters, sons that could eventually become fighters and armies, wealth that could eventually become resources, and then you became even greater in number and manpower than you were earlier, right? But then again they spread, and that's not going to be mentioned in detail here, but then again they spread this fitna a second time. Sheikh Ashraf Ali Allah, his view is that the first facade was when they disbelieved in Sayyidina Musa and the second facade is when they disbelieved in Sayyidina Isa That would make a lot of sense because this is two major uh, mistakes that the Bani Israel did. And you read in Surah Baqarah last year how they killed so many Anbiya in between those two Anbiya, between Sayyidina Musa and Sayyidina Isa they killed so many Anbiya. And according to many reports, they also attempted to kill Sayyidina Isa himself. Right? right. The lesson for us is what? That because of their disobedience to their prophets, because of their disobedience to the book and scripture that was revealed to them, Allah Ta'ala sent a force that wiped them out. And some Muslims always suggest that this is what happens to us in the contemporary world or in history, whether the Mughal invasion or whether... The, sort of the Mongol invasion or whether losing Andalus Muslim Spain or even losing the Mughal Muslim rule right difference is in that in terms of this Ummah Nabi Akrim made a dua to Allah Subhanahu which Allah Ta'ala accepted that he will never send an ijtimai adab or a collective punishment on this Ummah so you never really know sometimes a decline and downfall on the Ummah is due to the sins of the Ummah and in sometimes a decline, downfall, defeat of Ummah in history and even in contemporary times is just the wish of Allah SWT. This is His will and wish and decree because Nabi Karim Sallallahu has taught us in Hadith that spiritually speaking we will always have Nizul. From the time of Nabi Karim Sallallahu up to the time of Imam Islam, there will be spiritual decline. And so we are on that decline. There may be moments when we have momentary surges, but the overall sum trajectory is one of decline. And that is the will and wish of Allah SWT. Allah Ta'ala knows best how and why He may make that happen. But because we don't know, our job is to feel that anything that happens to us as a collective is due to our departure from the teachings of Qur'an and our departure from the sunnah and teachings of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then in Ahsantum, so this is a something that Allah Ta'ala is saying to them, but it's a general rule. That if you do good, then you did good for your own selves, for the benefit of your own selves. When Asatum, and if you do wrong, if you commit evil, then you commit that evil to the detriment of your own selves. So what does it mean that basically our own actions are only going to come back to us? 
it's not going, no matter how good we are, we're not going to benefit Allah SWT in any way. And no matter how bad we are, we're not going to harm Allah SWT in any way. Then, فَإِذَا جَاءَ وَعْدُ الْآخِرَةِ And when the latter of those two decrees came, right, which was that they were going to reach a haughty arrogance, uh, then what happens, Allah SWT said, such that they shamed and spoiled your faces. And so that they entered into the Masjid al-Haram the same way that it had been entered awwal marra in the first instance. Right? And they destroyed whatever they came upon. They destroyed everything that they were able to do. This is the second quelling of the Bani Israel. Then, next thing that happens is And still, your Lord may yet have mercy upon you. Your Lord may yet have mercy upon you. This may mean, right, to the, contempt, the Jews contemporary at that time, that if you accept Nabi Karim Sassam as the Prophet, you accept the Deen of Islam, still yet your Rabb may have mercy on you. Again, this is a broader lesson for all of us. That if we make a mistake and a sin, and that Allah Ta'ala punishes us for that sin, it doesn't mean Allah Ta'ala's wrath or anger is irreversible. Allah Ta'ala may still yet have mercy on us if we make tawbah to Him, if we repent from that sin, that we have suffered the sufferings, of, so we have suffered the consequences of that sin, doesn't mean Allah Ta'ala is now permanently, irreversibly angry with us. No, we can still get the mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Right, so this is a small few words, part of ayah that you can recite to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala in dua. When you feel very low, very downtrodden, Allah you said in Quran, that and yet it is still possible that maybe your Rav will have mercy and be lenient towards you. And that Allah Ta'ala, I am waiting for that. I have sinned and I have suffered because of my sin. And I have squandered my opportunities because of my sin. But yet I have hoped that perhaps your mercy will come to me. So continuing then the narrative in Qurama, in Uttum, Udna, that if you repeat what you did, then Udna, then we will repeat. In other words, if you repeat that which you did, then we will repeat the way you were treated. We will again quell you again, we will send forces against you. وَجَعَلْنَا جَهَنَّمَ الْكَافِرِينَ hasira. Allah Ta'ala says, and then we made uh, Jahannam Hellfire a prison. Hasir, literally a encompassing, entrapping, enclosement prison for the unbelievers and here kafir means unbelievers but also specifically those who deny and defy defy the commandments of Allah subhanahu indeed this Quran al-Kareem is guiding towards that which is most sound and correct and straight and straightforward and this Quran al-Kareem brings glad tidings to the believers those believers who do righteous acts whether they're acts of worship or acts of piety or acts of other bin akhlaq. And what is the good news and glad tidings that it brings those believers? That they will have a great and tremendous reward with Allah As for those people who don't believe in the akhirah, who don't believe in the hereafter, Allah Ta'ala says that we have prepared for them a painful torment and punishment. Alright. Now Allah Ta'ala says something very interesting. That that means, and yet humanity prays bisharri, makes dua, makes dua and prays for evil. 
du'a'uhu just as it prays for khair as good. In the same manner that they pray for good. In the likeness that they pray for good. So what does it mean? That Allah Ta'ala is saying that He wants to bring us into Jannah and keep us away from Jahannam. But not just our actions, even our du'a. So what does this mean? So Sayyidina Hassan, ta'ala anhu, and also Sayyidina Mujahid, ta'ala mentioned that what this means, what does it mean to make du'a bishar? This is the closest you're going to get to the concept of bad du'a in Quran. It means that sometimes when a person gets angry, now listen to this carefully, Sometimes when a person gets angry, they curse themselves, they curse their family. Sometimes when they get depressed, for example, sometimes when they get really to say, I wish I were dead. People sometimes think like that. They may say it in their mind. I wish he was dead. I wish she were dead. I wish she didn't exist. I wish this would happen to her. Right? All of that is this. To make dua bishar. And in Hadith, Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu taught us, that do not curse and make such curses for oneself or one family, lest you make that curse, means dua bishar, in a moment when duas are accepted. Ab bad dua na mange, kyunki ye bhi gaane ke ab dua ke kabool hone ke wakta bad dua mange. Right? So here Allah Ta'ala is saying, وَيَدْ insan, insan is the feature of humanity. And it means, it means sometimes they strive, they seek out and yearn for evil the same way that they were supposed to seek out and yearn for good. That's another way to take it. But literally here, it does mean dua. That indeed humanity is hasty, is prone to haste. Right? And you will see all of these things. Anger, we get into a state of anger too quickly. Hostility and enmity, we start having bad feelings towards someone too quickly. So here Allah subhanahu is mentioning that this is a problem with insan, this is a problem with humanity. And this insan, if they become molded by iman, then they won't make this dua for shar. When they have stronger iman, then they won't be hasty and be haste in their anger and other things. Then Allah Ta'ala mentions the sign, Then we have made the night and the day two signs what in which we erase the sign of the night. What does it mean? Through the breaking of the dawn. So when you have the sign of the night is itself darkness. So some people will translate mahauna as we darken the night. Some people translate literally as we erase the night. The sign of the night is darkness. And then the, that sign of darkness is erased when you have the breaking of the dawn. And then what is the breaking of the dawn means the breaking of the dawn and the new day. And what is the sign of the day? So mubsira means bright and revealing in other words, for seeing and for visibility. So that you may go and seek the bounty from your Rabb. Right? Bounty means the risk that Allah Ta'ala has placed for you. That you may earn and seek a livelihood and sustenance in this world. But you're doing so with the doing, you're seeking it from your Rabb. And another reason that the passing of time and transitioning and alternating from night and day has been made as a sign is that so you may learn the number of years. means the passing of years, hisab, and that you may also learn how to calculate. So what does this mean? So in normal places, right? In normal places, the passing of night and day is how all of us AM, PM watches, we keep time, we keep track of time, keep track of the passing of time. And if you're living in a strange place where there's perpetual daylight for six months, or there's perpetual night for six months, then you do it with hisab. So if you go to one of those places, and I've 
came close in Norway to going to such place. And then the Norwegian's brothers told me that it's very simple, although it's 24 hours, it's daylight, if we were to have gone all the way up north, but they use Hesab. They're using the same AM, PM. They're all still working 9 to 5. And they're still going to go to sleep at 10, 11 p.m. So that's on the basis of Hesab, right? I'm amazed, you know, again, some rationalists tried to twist this and say, you know, Allah Ta'ala didn't know about these places where there were six months day and six months night. Allah Akbar. <laughs> right? That such a petty detail could escape the knowledge of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And that's actually what's included here in Wal Hisab. Okay, here Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, in everything we have explained in great detail. Now, what does this mean, right? If you take this literally, and you can't take it literally because otherwise what I'm about to say would be blasphemy. <laughs> if you take it literally, it's not true. Right? I just even showed you. We just went through some ayahs where Allah Ta'ala is not explained. I showed you a couple of times. It's not anywhere in Quran and Hadith what happened to this Ban Israel. So what does it mean here? Kul What does it mean? So it means actually every single thing that is required for our hidayah has been explained by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in great detail. And there are a lot of things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not explained to us in detail, but those are not the things that are relevant and pertinent or necessary for us. Alright? Okay. What does it mean? This is also a very important thing. If you understood what I just said, then the second thing you would understand from that is that if there's anything that you do not know the details of, it means you're not, it's not part of your hidayah, you're not responsible for that. For example, we're not responsible to know the exact historical timeline of what were those two incidents when the Bani Israel spread fisad on earth. But the general lesson we get from that, we're responsible for that. And there may be other things, so sometimes young men and women have questions about specific details about the nature of Allah SWT. And then sometimes they don't find an answer to some specific detailed question they had. Well, you should know that if the answer doesn't exist, what it means is that not that knowledge that you were seeking was not part of the hidayah that you need. And you could spend your whole life then seeking it, you'll never be able to get it. You'll never be able to get it. Right? Okay. Each and every single member of humanity, Allah Ta'ala says, we have fastened the fate of each and every one of them around their neck. That's literally what it means. So we have fastened it around their neck. Here the word ta'ir literally actually meant bird, right? So why did the sponsor use it? This is a kinaya. Kinaya means a metaphorical usage in Arabic. What the pre-Islamic and even in the early Islamic period, but not the Muslims, but the Arabs that in the pre-Islamic and Islamic period they used to do, is they used to shake a tree on which there was a bird on a branch, and they viewed this as an omen. If the bird went right, that was a good sign. If the bird went left, it was a bad sign. And you see, Allah Ta'ala has used the same metaphor elsewhere in Quran as all of you know. Some people will get their book of deeds in their right hand. Some people will get, and that's a good sign. Some people will get in their left hand. That's a bad sign. And some will get it behind their back. That's a devastatingly bad sign. Right? That's in Quran. Right? So here Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala then metaphorically used the word ta'ir. So ta'ir here means book of deeds. Doesn't literally mean a bird. Means the book of deeds. Okay. وَنُخْرِجُ لَهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامِةِ كِتَابًا 
and then we will bring forth and produce for them that book of record, that record of deeds. And they will find that manshura, they will find that book spread wide open in front of them. It means wide open, maybe even so wide open that like we say at a glance, at a glance they will see every single thing that they did. That knowledge, even though technically it's a knowledge we already have because we lived our life, but we forget things, right? That itself is viewed to be an immense thing that's going to happen on the Day of Judgment. I don't think even right now, however much jitna zindagi hum ab tak ji chuke hain, if we were to see every single thing we did and said and felt and thought at a glance, it would be overwhelming for us to confront our own life, to confront our own reality. So this is what it means, manshura. It will be spread for them like an unrolled parchment. The whole life at a glance, they will see it. And that's why it comes in other places in Quran. Later, you don't have to do it on the screen, but later you can look at Surah 69, verses 25 to 26, where the person who is uh, pious, he will be happy and he will say, come, look at my record, look at my kitab. He will want others to look at it. And the one, Allah Akbar, who is unhappy, hmm? the fear and the you know, anxiety he will face when he looks at that, right? So, and what does it mean that it's hanging on the neck means right there with that. It's inescapable. It's inescapable. It's hanging on their neck. It just has to be unrolled and spread out in front of them. That's what's going to happen. Then we'll be told, Ikra kitabak. Read your book. Look at it. Don't turn around. Imagine almost somebody grabs your head and makes you look at something. You know, sometimes when somebody doesn't look and you grab them and you tell them, look at it, look at it. That's what will happen. Look at, at a glance, look at your entire life spread out. And ikra means read, look at each and every single thing. Don't even do a holistic glance. Go through each and every single thing that you did and said and thought and felt. Allahu Akbar Kabira. It's our own life. There's nothing else that Allah is going to put us through. It's our own life that we will have to face on the Day of Judgment. Even before you face Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, before you face the Mizan, this comes first, first face your own life. Face yourself. So that's why in our deen we always say that you should do mahasaba, you should do this now. Face your own record now. Reflect on your deeds now. Because there's still time. You still have the eraser and you still have the pencil. <laughs> Right? Take a look at the book while you have the eraser and the pencil because on that day there will be no eraser and there will be no pencil. Hmm? So this is something, this is a command we should hearken to know. Ikra kitabak that you should read your book and reflect on your book. Some have suggested it might even mean recite your book. Right? Enumerate your deeds. Allah Akbar. Imagine if you had to do that. If you have to enumerate and count out and mention your amal. Allahu Akbar. That happens, right? We say, read what you wrote. And the person's quite like, understand, right? The lawyer will say, okay, this is what you wrote the person, read it. And he doesn't want to read it. So the court orders you to read out loud that threatening letter you wrote. And now the person, because he's ordered, he has to read it out loud. <laughs> Allahu Akbar. Imagine like that if one had to read out loud the book of deeds. Kafa bi nafsikal yoma alayka. Allahu Akbar kabira. Kafa bi nafsikal yoma alayka hasiba. 
that on this day your own self is sufficient to call to testify against you. Your own self is sufficient to testify against you. You read your own book of deeds, you will be testifying against your own self. We don't need to call witnesses, Allah Ta'ala saying. Although that is a process, but I don't need to call the angels, I don't need to call the pieces of earth, I don't need to call witnesses. You yourself can testify against yourself. Read your record. Allahu Akbar. Ajeeb. Man ihtada. That person, ihtada means, remember Bab Ihtiyal, those of you who are studying, this means the one who adopts Hidayah, who accepts Hidayah, who follows Hidayah, who submits to Hidayah. To Hidayat yafta hota. Man ihtada. فَإِنَّمَا يَحْتَدِي لِنَفْسِ Then that person, then their act of following that hidayah is for the benefit of their own self. وَمَنْ And that person who goes astray, and every such person who goes astray, فَإِنَّمَا يَذِلُّ عَلَيْهَا And that person then has gone astray against their own benefit, literally it means to their own detriment. Against their own benefit, yani to their own detriment. وَلَا تَزِرُوا وَازِرَةٌ وِزْرَ أُخْرَى Alright, that no responsible wazira means that person who bears responsibility no person who bears responsibility will bear the responsibility of another person okay what does this mean because many times people say that what is the exact meaning of this verse this verse means in terms of actions and deeds and this verse is specifically talking about bad actions and deeds but still Right? It comes in many other texts of Islam that if somebody misguides, right, misdirects someone and causes them to do a bad action, so they will suffer the sin of that act of misguidance. And the level of sin of misguidance will be the level of that sin that you misguided to. Right? But not because you did it, but the point is that because the person who did it will get the sin of doing it, you will get the sin of guiding them to do it, but the sin of guiding them to do it will be set as the same as the sin of doing it. And that is something you did. That was your act of misguidance. And similarly, it works in a positive way. This is why Sayyidina Rasulullah says, Adalu al That person who guides to an act, Kafa'ilihi, is like the person who does it. So similarly, the person who guides to an act will get the same reward as the person who... It's a good act. God's doing a good act. Will get the same reward as the person who does that good act. But beyond that, right, what it means is that people who are disconnected from one another, then no one will be able to bear the burden of another person. Another sense that it has over here is that, look, you are going to testify against yourself if you're following guidances for your own self. You cannot present, you cannot count on some other person, some friend in this world, that they will be able to, out of friendship for you, be able to take your burden on the Day of Judgment. That's what it means you won't be able to do that. Right? That's all really, in a sense, what this means. وَمَا كُنَّ مُؤَذِّبِينَ And, here, وَمَا كُنَّ مُؤَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْأَثَ Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying is that, nor do we ever inflict punishment. Nor do we ever inflict punishment until we have sent a messenger. So what does it mean that nobody will be worthy of punishment or sort of uh, nobody can merit punishment or receive punishment 
until a prophet has been sent to them. But Allah Ta'ala said elsewhere, Surah Fatir, Surah 35, verse 34, that every single nation has received and receives and has received a warner. Because Nabi Karim is the last and final prophet and messenger. So now it's done now. As far as Quran al-Kareem goes, every human community has received a prophet. And from the time of Quran up till the end of time, every human being is the addressee, the mukhatib of Quran. Now that's a separate thing that we used to teach you in Islamic studies class, that, you know, what about those people? So yes, if there is somebody, ulama have written, if there is somebody who the message of Islam has not reached them at all, then they will be judged on the Day of Judgment according to the fitrat of Tawheed and the fitrat, the morality that's in their fitrah. For example, they will still know it's not right to kill, they will still know it's not right to steal, that's the morality in the fitrah, but also the, the, all, the deen of Islam believes that Tawheed is also part of a fitrah, that they will have to have a belief in one supreme God. They may not have ever known Quran, they may not know that that is the God that has revealed Quran, but one supreme almighty being who is alone in his might and power and unparalleled without equal, without partner Tawheed, they have to come to that belief on the basis of their fitrah. And it's Allah Ta'ala will give them the hidayah. Very important. It's not going to be their own akli journey. Allah Ta'ala will give them sufficient hidayah which will enable them to make that choice, will put that tawheed and morality in their reach so they will be judged on whether they responded to that hidayah and made the right choices or not. Right? Okay. Then Allah Ta'ala continues that, and when we intend when we intend to destroy a community or a town, right? Now here, this is an interesting thing, that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala sends, when we intend to destroy a town, this is going to have to do with the wealthy. Uh, okay, so those who are wealthy, now what it means here is not just those who are wealthy, but you can see those who have been corrupted by their wealth, right? This is not a blanket uh, prohibition as most people, I'd say most, but maybe some people have transited like that, that those who are wealthy, but it's really, yeah. So those who are corrupted by wealth, and due to their corruption, fiha, then they do fisk in that karya. They do injustice, disobedience, corruption in that community and in that town, right? Then, what happens is that Allah subhanahu alayhi al-qawl Qawl literally means the speech, word, decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means that now that community becomes worthy of this decree of punishment that Allah ta'ala will send upon them. So what does this mean, right? There is a sense here that the leaders of a community Right, sometimes are responsible for the whole community and if the leaders of a community have to follow the commandments of Allah Taala and the teachings of the deen of Islam otherwise what does Allah Taala say and it's a very strong sentence uh, in Arabic that we will destroy them utter and absolute destruction Right, we will destroy them utterly وَكَمْ أَحْلَكْنَا مِنَ الْقُرُونَ and how many such communities are there that we have, and nations and communities have, that we have destroyed in Ba'dinur after Sayyidina Nuh So what does it mean? Now Nuh remember his community, we did this last year, 
they were disobedient, disbelieving Allah Ta'ala, except for the few believers who were allowed to be put on that boat, the entire community was destroyed through a flood, right? So Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is invoking that, the way the destruction of the community of Nuh Salam took place, and Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is saying, and how many of them have we destroyed after Nuh Salam? So don't think it's just an isolated incident. But again, like I told you, this process stopped at the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah because of the dua that he made to Allah SWT. Right? So you won't find that anymore. وَكَفَى بِرَبِّكِ بِذُنُوبِ عِبَادِهِ خَبِيرًا بَسِيرًا And indeed, Allah SWT sufficiently knows. Allah SWT knows and it's Allah Taala alone on His own independent self-sufficiency. He is fully aware, Khabir and Basir, all seeing of the sins of his servants. And this is a very strong ayah, right? Allah SWT is saying, He is Khabir and Basir, He is all aware and all seeing of the dhunub of each and every and all sins of his ibad, of his servants and steps. So this is a different touch, right? It's not bidhunub insan, bidhunub ibadihi. Ibad, that's who we are trying to be, right? We are trying to be the ibadullah the worshipful servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on His own is sufficient. What does it mean that up there Allah ta'ala said there will be a book of deeds where there's a record. Then the person will read that book of deeds. Then the nafs is sufficient, the self is sufficient to testify. But Allah ta'ala is reminding, but actually that's just a sabab. Again, that's just a sabab. In reality, Allah ta'ala Himself is sufficient and He's completely all aware and all seeing of the sins. This is supposed to be more terrifying. Actually, there's a build-up to this. More scary than the fact that what we're doing is being recorded and it's hanging around our neck. More scary that it will be unrolled and spread wide for us. More scary that we will look at all of that at a glance. More scary that we will have to read it, possibly recite it. More scary that we will testify against our own selves is this part, وَكَفَى بِرَبِّكَ بِذْنُوبِ عِبَادِهِ خَبِيرًا بَسِيرًا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself has sufficient and on His own he is all aware and all seeing of all of the sins of his ibad. Allah Akbar. That's supposed to be more intense for us. So these are the feelings of iman. These are the feelings of believers. That by Allah Ta'ala is khabir and basir. And that should change the way I act. I'm under surveillance. I'm under observation. I should make myself a different person. Even before anything is written in my book of deeds. This is also the way out in the future. To be aware that Allah Ta'ala is aware of us. Man kana ajila. Okay, here Allah Subhanahu is going to talk in the passage about this world or the Akhirah. So who is going to choose what? Who is going to choose the life of the immediate world? And who is going to choose the life of the Akhirah? So whomsoever chooses the immediacy of this temporary immediate life in front of them, lahu fiha ma nasha'u, and then Allah Ta'ala says that, okay, we will give him in this life whatever we want, however much we want. So the point is, you will get it, but even you won't get how much you want, you will get how much Allah Ta'ala wants. So if you make the object of your focus the dunya, you will get it, but you won't get what you want, when you want, how you want, how much you want, that Allah Ta'ala will decree. And he will give it to whomsoever Allah Ta'ala wants. Ma nasha'u. Okay. And then, uh, what will happen afterwards and then we will assign we will place them into Jahannam 
جہنم
The people who get more, it's not a sign of their acceptance in any way. The people who get less, it's not their sign of unacceptance in any way. However, the Akhirah, But to the Akhirah belong the more important, the greater darajat and levers. And it's much greater in its puzzle, in its superiority to this dunya. So the real merit, superiority, virtue, and the greater levels to be had and to be worried about are those that will be found in the Akhirah. Alright. So we're going to st- stop and t- let me. F- let me go a little bit more and then we'll stop. So then. Th- there's not much that we really need to uh, comment over here. So verse number, verse, we're on verse number 22. Okay, don't take any other God. That's very simple. Do not make anyone else take any other being as a deity, as a God except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Otherwise, what will happen is you will sit, فَتَقْعُدَ means you will sit, but it means you will have established yourself as somebody who is disgraced and downtrodden, all right, condemned and forsaken, then Allah says, "Your Lord is decreed that you should worship none other behim. Allah Taala declared and decreed that you should worship no being other than Him alone. and that you should have ihsan with your two parents. All right. Here, Allah Taala is going to mention some details about this ihsan with the parents. So there's two things going on here simultaneously. Simultaneously. This is one of the beauties of Quran because they're two opposite things but they're happening simultaneously. On the one hand, Allah Ta'ala is saying is that only and only Allah Ta'ala will be taken as a God means don't take your parents as a God. No matter how much sometimes their parents want us to take them as gods. <laughs> what does that mean? Absolute obedience. In terms of the absolute obedience part, that belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Right? So on the one hand, Allah ta'ala is completely separating. Obviously, all creation is separated from the Creator. Separating parents from Himself. On the other hand, simultaneously, He's linking the importance of doing ahsan to parents with the importance of worshipping Him alone. So He's elevating the importance of doing ihsan to parents is being taken place in the same ayah as the importance of not doing shirk, doing ibadah and ubudiyah and itaat to Allah Ta'ala alone. So two things happen, right? It should be very clear, and, and especially the parents and the mothers who are listening should understand this well. That obedience lies to Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala alone. Obedience to parents can only take place when it is within the confines of obedience to deen and sharia. There is no such concept of obeying parents when it means disobeying Allah subhanahu wa And this is a very difficult thing for people to do. And many parents, because of this ihsan and so many other, a few other ayahs coming and so many other teachings, sometimes they generally themselves think, and sometimes they may even try to, so to speak, emotionally blackmail their children, that Islam says that they have to obey the parents even when obedience to parents is disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa Sometimes that comes in things that Islam views as very basic and trivial. But today people have made it the be-all and end-all of life. How a person looks, or hijab, or beard, right? And the parent will insist that, no, you have to obey me. No, you're not supposed to obey the parents when it comes to this. 
You have to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's no question of obeying parents when it comes to matters of deen. Right? It, just imagine like this. Your boss tells you to do something at work and your mom tells you not to do it. Would you listen to your mom? You'll tell your mom that this is not your sphere, this is not your arena. <laughs> when it comes to matters at work, I have to obey the boss. And if your mother, then if your mother recites you this, but paradise lies at the feet of your mother, you say, yes, but not at work. <laughs> at work, paradise lies at the feet of my boss, right? So actually in deen, in matters of sharia, and sunnah, and itaat, and ibadah, paradise lies at at the feet of the commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the feet of the sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah but ihsan is for the wild end so, there's the, so it's unfortunate many times I would also tell the parents and maybe not those type of parents come to us but they would definitely know other types of parents when the parents try to twist the first part of the ayah when they try to get obedience to themselves instead of obedience to Allah they lose that ihsan then they lose out on the ihsan. Then they actually will get kids who are rude to them, which is wrong. But the adab and akhlaq and khidmat and love, right, and service and kindness that Allah Ta'ala wants the parents to get, sometimes the parents endanger that, that instead of asking for that in their field, and the parent-child relationship wanting the love and service and help and kindness and respect, instead of asking for that, they ask for the obedience that belongs to Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. They ask for obedience in matters of deen. I've even had cases where parents tell their kid not to pray in the masjid. They tell their kids all types of things. They tell their kids to sin. Right? So when the parents enter that realm, then they are themselves sacrificing the realm and the entitlement that Allah Ta'ala gave them. Right? But I appreciate for many of our parents and for the elder generation, it's a bit difficult for them to cope with the... (laughs) level of deen of some of their children. But they have to find a way. But if they don't find a way, and if they try to make the child have compliance and obedience to them, instead of compliance and obedience to deen, then they will lose this place of Esau. Allah Ta'ala has put them in. Alright? So, let's finish this few more eyes about parents, and I'll, I'll, I'll discuss this a little bit anymore. Uh, I will discuss this a bit more. Where were we? Okay. Imma yablughanna indakal kibara ahaduhuma. That if any one of the two of them reach old age, right? Now again, parents can't have it two ways. You know, with their friends they want to be young, but with the kids they play the old age card, right? When you reach old age, now this is something now, there's some things here that are being mentioned specifically about old age. So if any one or both of them, right? O kilahuma or the two of them, Ever reach old age, uf. That you should not say to the two of them uf. So first of all, this word is literal, that you should not say the word uf. And in Urdu it has the same connotation of Arabic. It's an expression of vexation and frustration. What it means is you should not do anything verbally, or in body language, or in expression, or in mannerism. That even in the slightest expresses some type of frustration or impatience from them. So what Allah Ta'ala knew that when parents become old then you have to be their caretakers. You have to do khidmat of them. And old people generally some of them may get senile or they may get difficult or they may be cranky or they may actually still be sweet 
but you are so busy in your own life that you view it as a burden to take care of them and you are wrong but you feel the feeling of frustration. So the first teaching is never let that come out. Second is that you should never feel it in the first place. Right? And it's a very, very strict teaching. Right? And this is, this is what is known to be one of the strictest teachings in Islam. Right? So the teaching here is not don't ever disobey your parents. The teaching here is don't ever be impatient with your parents. Don't ever disrespect your parents. Don't ever be rude to your parents. Don't ever be lazy in servicing them when they need you. Right? So it can be old age or any other similar condition in which they need your service, they need your help, they need your care. Whether it's old age or anything else, you should be unfailing and unflinching in that duty. So the du- it's a duty. It's an obligation. It's something Allah Ta'ala is declaring as a duty and obligation. But what is that duty and obligation? It's not obedience, it's service and kindness and politeness and respect and love. That's what the duty is. So we have to be clear about what the duty is. Right? Okay. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, continues and says, Wala tanharhuma, which is Urdu, you know, jirki na dena, which means don't reprimand them, unku tok na ne. Now this becomes difficult. Some people may be saying, but you know, sometimes if they have a parent with some types of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or sometimes you have to find some way to do it without talking. Yes? You have to find a way to do it. Because you just can't do it. وَكُلُّهُمَا قَوْلًا karima. And then third, again Allah Ta'ala says, and you must speak to them in kareem qawl. In the most kind and generous and sweet of speech and tone. Right? Now all of this is again because in Islam the zahir and batin have a rub. The way you talk is going to affect the way you feel. Right? Just like the way you feel affects the way you talk, it works the other way around also. The way you talk is going to affect the way you feel. And if you talk in a sweet, kind, generous, sincere way, then you will start feeling the sincere feelings about them. Right? And yes, to merge the two things that I said, that if anybody's parents ever try to push them into obe- in such an obedience and compliance with them, that it entails disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even then you cannot say any of these things. You cannot debate your parents. You cannot talk back to your parents. You cannot criticize your parents. You cannot have arguments with your parents. Even when it comes to deen, you have to obey Allah You have to keep your actions right, but you cannot argue with your parents over that. You have to be quiet. You have to be respectful. And whenever you speak to them, you have to speak to them with and karima. And then if you do that, due to the barakah of your compliance with this teaching of Allah then inshallah Allah will put hidayah on their heart and make them soften up towards the deen. Soften up to your compliance, right? And this is almost our almost entire experience with the youth is that if they are steadfast on their deen, but they're also steadfast on this, that they're never rude, they never talk back, and they're steadfast on their khidmat and their love and their respect, then Allah Ta'ala softens the parents' hearts. It may take a month, it may take a year, sometimes it takes a few years. But eventually that parent will now accept that young man or woman's deen, right? And if the young man or woman tries to argue, tries to dispute, talks back, then that living, that household just becomes a household of fighting and argumentation day and night, right? Then Allah mentions another way, وَاخْفِدْ لَهُمَا جَنَاحَ الذُّلِّ 
literally min rahma you should lower to them the wings of mercy and humility right uh, means that you should lower yourself before them right out of humility and compassion or humility and mercy mukul rabbir hamhuma kama rabbayani sagira and the third thing you should make is dua so the first thing was verbal second was like i mentioned body language demeanor mannerism interaction that you should lower yourself be humble in front of them right and you should have your mercy and compassion with them and the final thing that allah ta'ala says you should also make dua for them also make dua for them now the level of dua right and the level of respect for parents that has been mentioning uh, mentioned in our deen let me just finish this last rabbukum a'lam bima fi nufusikum that your rabb is more knowing with what you feel in your heart in takunu salihina and if you were to become the righteous and worshipful and virtuous believers, that indeed Allah SWT is all forgiving for those who turn to Him often. Awab are those who keep turning to Him in Tawbah and seeking His mercy and forgiveness. So, and Allah Ta'ala saying, Allah Ta'ala knows even what you feel in your heart. And how you feel towards Him is also known to Allah SWT. Few things from the hadith to go along with these verses about our relationship with our parents, right? The level of khidmat that a person has to do for parents is literally unlimited. Once there was a sahaba who had an, whose mother was an old woman. So he carried her on his back in tawaf. And he did tawaf carrying his fairly heavy, probably, old mother. And at the end of the tawaf, he went to the Prophet and he asked, the Yarasusam, did I do the right khidmat? of my mother and the Prophet said that you have not even compensated her for one breath that she took for the span of one breath that she took when she was pregnant with you right so you can never return so this service kindness respect humility compassion can a lifetime of that is is viewed in our deen as never returning even a breath and it's Although maybe there are more hadith specifically about the mother, there are some hadith about the father as well. For example, one of the Nabiya Karim says, the father is the door or the gateway to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Means that when the father is happy, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is happy. So there are hadith about fathers as well. In another hadith, one sahaba asked the Prophet that what is that act that is most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? First, the Prophet said salah. Second, the Prophet said that ihsan in this well treatment, the best of treatment to your parents. And third, the Prophet said, Jihad fi sabilullah. Right? And the fact that the Prophet put Asan of the Walidain before Jihad fi sabilullah is something that has been much commented on. Right? Much commented on. And sometimes misunderstood as well and misrepresented, but it shows uh, the high, extremely high level of these ayat and of these commandments in Quran al-Kareem. So much so that there are even other hadiths where the Prophet said that the pleasure of the parents is equal to and tantamount to the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa But again, the commentary of that is if the parents are pleased by something that is illegitimate, then that's not the type of pleasure you have to give them. But when you can please your parents through legitimate means, because every single teaching of deen is governed by sharia, Whatever you have to do, you have to do it through legitimate means, whether it's sadaqah, charity to the poor, whether it's ihsan, kindness to the parents, it has to be done through legitimate shari'i means. So in whatever sense we can please parents legitimately, then their pleasure, their being pleased with us, 
earns us the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then their hadith also about the du'as of parents for the children, that what a child gets from all of this is that the, what Deen wants that the parents should make du'as for the children, those children that are pleasing to them, right? And uh, the du'as of the parents are the most effective du'as that anybody could ever have. And last hadith is that one way to increase our risk the Prophet mentioned hadith is that those people who treat their parents well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will expand their risk for them. So we're on Surah Bani Israel, Surah al Surah number 17, verse number 26. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then after stressing the rights of parents mentions the rights of the broadly speaking relatives al qurba which are generally relatives, well, the miskeen and the poor, wabnas sabil and the traveler. That each and every one of them should be given their right and that we should not squander our resources recklessly. What does this mean? Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is expanding this issue of spending. Now, Allah Ta'ala did not specifically mention above spending on parents. Spending was not mentioned explicitly, but it's include, included in the asan and the khidmah. And it's included in the act of lowering one's wing of compassion and mercy to them when they become old. And one should not be frustrated on that spending. So when a person says, oh, for not saying of, also means in your heart not getting frustrated at whatever financial expense or support your parents might need. And this is a tremendous thing that when we're growing up as children, we want our parents to support us with all the money they have. And we get all upset if they don't give us some extra money when we need it. But then you find that same young man and woman who wanted their parents to give them all the financial support, when they grow up and if it so happens that their parents may become financially dependent or partially dependent on them, inside they sometimes people are so attached to money that they get bothered by that. And they say, oof to that. So this was something that Allah, Allah Ta'ala didn't mention explicitly. It's understood in this context because next Allah Ta'ala mentions the financial responsibilities that we have in charity. One reason is that because some of the commentators say that Allah Ta'ala views it as mm, almost demeaning to even mention such a thing that parents are worthy of financial support. That is something that should be understood and should fall well within this definition of Ihsan. But beyond that, then the Zulqurba, which is our other relatives, literally those who are near to us, and those who are poor and needy, the miskeen, and the travelers. Now by travelers, this was a time in the Muslim period, in early history, when people who traveled, they would sometimes have needs about them. Otherwise today, if a person is traveling and they're well off, then they also should themselves realize, and others would realize, that they're not actually in any need of charity. So... Uh, for all intents and purposes unless the traveler then is somebody who is needy relatives and those who are poor relatives means that yes sometimes you may have relatives they may be uncles or aunts or cousins or siblings or siblings or uncles and aunts of your spouse i.e. in your in-laws 
who have some financial need, Allah Ta'ala is saying in Quran that you should be generous with them as well. That you should be willing to give your sadaqah as well. That if Allah Ta'ala has given you such a bounty and fuzzle, such a risk and sustenance, that you have enough financial wealth that is beyond your own needs and you can be a means of supporting others. And you will find that the people who, there are success stories like that. Many times we have met a student whose education was financed not from their parents, but by an uncle or an aunt, right? And that was the right feeling of the aunt and uncle that they viewed, they had so much extra that in other words, not only could they support financially their own children, but they could support their nephew and niece, so they made that decision to do so. So this is the meaning of uh, the support. Supporting the needy, I think, is understood. The support of those who are poor has to be done until poverty is alleviated. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions another aspect, which is what he's translated as squandering, or you can say those who are excessively extravagant, right? What does it mean? It means squandering your wealth on wasteful items, unnecessary luxuries, especially when there are those who are in a state of need in your circle. Whether, again, it's your parents, whether it's your family, whether it's the poor people in this ummah. So that is viewed as squandering. Something we talked about, I think, last night, or I don't remember, sometime recently, that squandering an extravagant means to spend on absolutely futile things. So there's your necessity, then there's your reasonable comfort and ease, but then beyond that, literally beyond that, I mean, that's the Islamic real philosophy of money, whether it may not be required, it may be nafil sadaqah, but the understanding is what is beyond my necessity and my reasonable comfort, that just all of that should go to the poor and needy people who don't have their necessities or people who are not living yet in reasonable comfort. All right. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what is the word he uses for these people? Kanu ikhwana shayateen. That they are literally the brethren. Brethren and brothers of the shayateen. Why? Because they are people who are wasteful and extravagant and squander. And what was shaitan's? Wakana shaitanu lirabbihi kafura. And shaitan was someone who was defiant and disobedient to his rub. So what does it mean? It means the act of squandering and israf is going to lead to disobedience. That's what Allah SWT is explaining. That when we are wasteful in our wealth, we will become disobedient. If for no other reason than we get overly attached to our wealth. And the young boys have this problem. They want to have their third edition MacBook Pro and they've never even given 100 rupees to any boy their age that they see on the street. Right? Their whole province is suffering in poverty. And they're just stuck on their third and fourth editions of the latest phones and laptops. So they don't have feeling. It means that a person doesn't have feeling of compassion. They're so numbed and desensitized to the situation around them. All right. Then Allah Ta'ala says that if you turn away from them looking for a fuzzle from your Rabb, a rahmah from your Rabb, a mercy from your Rabb that you were expecting, then speak to them in polite words. What does this mean? Is that okay? This is the case where somebody actually asks you that they need your help. And you're not able to do so. So the nukta here is that you should immediately turn towards your Rabb and look for his mercy and that Allah Ta'ala, this person is turning to me and I'm not in a position which I'm able to help them. Don't just say no and call it, just end it. Or don't say no and say, I'm justified in saying no because I don't have anything. No, the response you should have is, Allah Ta'ala sent this person to me. Okay, right now I don't seem to have extra to give him, but I should turn to Allah Ta'ala. You are the same being who sent him to me. Allah Ta'ala send some mercy, increase your risk upon me so that I have something to give them. 
So you create this expectation in you, right? And then you should speak to them فَكُلُّهُمْ قَوْلًا مَيْسُورًا That you should speak to them in gentle, easy words. It means words that are easy for them to hear, right? And the notion is that once you get that fuzzle and karam and rahmah from Allah Ta'ala later, then you would seek them out and then you would give it to them, right? So there's no real concept of jaan churana, put it that way, right? You have to just politely say no and then turn to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and then He will give you that risk so that you can deliver it to that person. And do not keep your hand tied to your neck nor extend it to the full extent unless you should be sitting reproached empty-handed. This means that don't be absolutely stingy but don't give all your money away. Now the first question that comes in a person's mind is what about Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq Right? So yes, if you have that level of tawakkul, absolute, absolute and utter, complete trust and reliance in Allah SWT and everyone in your family has that level of tawakkul, then you could actually, yes, give every single last penny you own in Salaka and this wouldn't happen to you. But the average mu'min doesn't have that tawakkul, they have this level of tawakkul. So for them, when they give everything, it will be a jazbah, they will give everything, but then once everything is gone, then they will sit there and they will get worried and they will have stress and they will have anxiety and they will question themselves, they will question Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah knows the weakness of people's iman. So He's telling the norm, because the normal level of iman people have is not sufficient that they will be able to give everything away. Indeed, then Allah SWT says that indeed He expands risk for whom in That indeed Allah SWT expands risk for whomsoever He wills. basira. We gave you a whole talk about this that Allah Taala knows He's all aware and all seeing about His ibad means that sometimes Allah Ta'ala expands risk for those people whose iman won't suffer as a result and sometimes Allah Ta'ala doesn't expand risk because He knows that this person will be spoilt as a result may turn into disobedience or laziness in their deen as a result of that. So Allah Ta'ala will expand risk for whomsoever He wants He will restrict risk for whomsoever He wants He gives it to whomsoever He wants in whatever manner that He wants. Then Allah Ta'ala mentions another thing that do not kill your children for fear of poverty. This happened originally, female infanticide, that they used to kill their female children because they viewed, and in that time historically that was probably true, that women are not going to really earn and contribute to the society, rather they'll be more of a dependent on the family. So they chose the pre-Islamic Arabs rather than to deal with that. And sometimes it was also a stigma of having a daughter they chose to bury their female babies alive. Here this is a more broad teaching and this comes to the broader topic and this is the first time it's come up so we'll have to talk about this a little bit about quote-unquote family planning and population control, right? And in the 1980s this was a very big thing that the United Nations had a huge, huge, massive worldwide campaign to promote family planning and especially in third world countries not specifically targeting the Muslim world no matter how much conspiracy a person wants to think and the predictions were in the 1980s that, oh, by 2010, this was a big year for them, 2010, that by 2010, Pakistan will have 150 or whatever it is, 140 million people, and the whole place will collapse. MashaAllah, it's 2012, Pakistan has 180 million people, and the system hasn't collapsed. So it means the doomsday scenario painted by those people who advocate family pending and population control turned out to be false. At a more micro level, however, 
what they will do is they will go to a family and they will say, a poor family who has five kids, and say, look, look at your five children. They're malnourished. You're not able to feed them properly. You're not able to clothe them properly. You're not able to educate them properly. Why in the world would you want to have a sick child? It doesn't make sense. And that argument makes a lot of sense. Allah SWT is also saying the same thing. This ayah has been understood to apply. It's not literal because it's not killing. You haven't have the children yet. But you cannot engage in any type of contraception, birth control, family planning, whatever, for this reason, for fear of poverty. You have to think that if, if we have a child, Allah Ta'ala will send the risk for that child. What you are allowed is a very tricky thing. It doesn't mean you have to have endless number of children. That's not required either. Right? That every family has to have 7, 10, 11, 15 children. Right? That's not required either. So you have to look at the total teachings. Another hadith Sayyidina Rasulullah said that I want my ummah to have abundant progeny. I want to be proud of the abundance of my ummah on the Day of Judgment. So some ulama have taken the position that that abundance or kathrat is reached by a minimum of three. Because three in Arabic is viewed as jama, is viewed as plural. So this is not a hard fast fatwa, this is not a strict ruling, but this is an andaz that some ulama have taken, that the minimum that you should have is three. Then those families who feel they can have more than three, in terms of their health, in terms of their ability to do their tarbiyah, their mali, Allah Ta'ala will take care of. But sometimes it gets the question of tarbiyah, right? They can have more, but then they can curtail it. And our own recommendation for those people, couples who are involved in work and khidmat of deen, is their range should be from three to five. Beyond five children, it gets very difficult to do khidmat of deen, and it gets difficult to do khidmat of deen plus do tirbiyat of your own children, because you want your children also to be strong on deen, right? But those couples who are not involved in that khidmat, who are not able to do that khidmat, maybe they're not equipped with the level of knowledge, or they don't have an opportunity, then they could even go beyond five, it's not a problem. Then the real cap would be issue of health, issue of parenting ability, parenting ease, parenting comfort, but the issue can never be one of wealth. Allah SWT can provide the wealth, but you may not be able to provide the time to look after or take care or do tirbiyah of your children. Alright? Similarly, if there are a husband and wife and the wife is working in a shari, lawful, halal way, then when you have a husband and wife who are both working, then yes, that fact does limit their ability to do tirbiyah of their children. Right? So, they should still find a way that they should be able to have, I would suggest, at least three. But here, here Allah SWT then makes it clear uh, about this issue of those children who could have potentially been born as well as the children who were killed in this infanticide. نَحْنُ نَرْزُكُهُمْ وَإِيَّاكُمْ We, indeed, we will provide risk for them and we are the ones who are providing risk for you. So this I makes it clear. This three words is sufficient answer to every single thing that anyone has ever said in family planning and population control. So it's not a question of risk at all. Right? And really, I mean, how are those five kids surviving? If that family planner had met them five years earlier, they would have told them to stop at four. Where did the risk come for that fifth kid? That the family planner is seeing with their own eyes. Right? That same Allah Ta'ala who sent risk for child number five 
could send it for child number six if number six were born. So it's not a question of risk, right? But it can be a question of many other things, right? And indeed, if anybody kills such a child, whether it's abortion or whether it's when the child is born, then that is a great sin indeed. Then Allah Ta'ala mentions another very, very important topic, which is something that we have talked about and all ulama talk about extensively. وَلَا تَقْرَبُ zina. The key word here is do not even go near zina. So one is to say don't do zina, don't commit zina. Here Allah Ta'ala says don't go near it. What does it mean don't go near it? It means mentally, physically, emotionally. All three things. Don't go near it physically. Don't do any of the physical precursors to zina. Don't do it mentally. Don't do any of the thoughts that lead up to the act of zina. And don't do it emotionally. Don't allow yourself to feel the feelings. You see, because there's a crude type of zina and there's another type of zina. And people make the mistake, they think just because it's not crude doesn't mean it's not unlawful. If you allow yourself to feel emotional feelings for a member of the opposite gender, just understand this very simply. Allah Ta'ala has designed every single human being such that when they allow themselves to feel romantic emotions about someone of the opposite gender, they will necessarily want to have some level of physical relations with that member of the opposite gender. There is absolutely no way that you can have romantic emotions for someone of the opposite gender and not want at some point to have physical, some level of physical relations with that member of the opposite gender. So you cannot allow yourself to have any romantic emotions. You cannot allow yourself to have any mm, imaginable, imaginary thoughts. And you cannot put yourself in any physical proximity or physical engagement. This is the simple teaching of deen. And every human being deep down knows this. And this is the teaching of all of the deens, by the way. This is something that is throughout the Bible as well. is throughout the Torah as well. And one can see, right, Jews and Christians to what extent they have left this teaching of their own scripture. They have left it entirely. Entirely, utterly, completely. Except a few conservative Christians who are still left in this world. Right? And you can see in the Muslim Ummah, by and large, the Muslim Ummah has almost left this entirely as well, and is rapidly moving at a fast pace in that direction. Right? Is rapidly moving at a fast pace in that direction. So the way Allah Ta'ala wants to make it easy for us to save ourselves from that sin, is لا تقربوا, don't even go near it. إِنَّهُ كَانَ فَاهِشَ That indeed it is an act of abomination and vulgarity and depravity. So that's the second way Allah Ta'ala is saying that it is a terrible wasa'a sabila and it is the evil way. It is the evil path to follow. It is an evil way to follow. So it is shameful. It is evil. And therefore anything that a person views to be shameful and evil you wouldn't go near it. Right? So that we have to make our emotional feeling about zina the same way Allah Ta'ala is describing it. It's when we view it to be shameful we view it to be despicable we view it to be an abomination we view it to be evil. When we feel that way about it, then we won't go near it. But if we view it to be wonderful and the best thing and the most alluring and attractive and pleasing thing, then of course we're going to start going near it. So we have to beg Allah Ta'ala to put... And sometimes, again, the Qur'an al-Kareem's al-Fa'az al-Qur'an have so much barakah in them that if you just remember this, right? So again, this is Surah 17, verse number 30, 
Two, if you just even recite this over and over to yourself, the words will put the feelings in your heart because they're Allah Ta'ala's words. The word of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala has that impact. It can put the feeling in your heart. So if a person says, this is precisely my problem, I don't view it to be shameful, I don't view it to be evil, they should just recite this. That's it. إِنَّهُ كَانَ فَاهِشَةً وَسَاءَ sabila. And they should just recite this over and over to themselves and reflect on the meaning of those words. And the wordings and the meanings will give rise to the feelings. Will give rise to the feelings, inshallah. Next thing Allah Ta'ala mentions, another big thing is do not kill any person. Do not kill a nafsa, any soul, any self. Allah Allahu that Allah Ta'ala has made sacred and sanctified. Illa bil haq. So this is something we discussed in Ghaliban Surah Baqarah. What are those cases in which Allah Ta'ala has allowed capital punishment? So we're not going to repeat that over here. That person who is killed unjustly. That person who is killed unjustly. Then Allah Ta'ala has given this. We also did uh, earlier on in Quran. That Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala has given his inheritors or his heirs the authority. And the authority of Sultan. And the authority means the authority of Qisas. And if they don't offer Qisas for Diyat. And all of these things are things that we have discussed last year. And if the person decides to go that route of an eye for an eye, a life for a life, then they should not do israf in that. They cannot cross the borders or cross the limits in the matter of that punishment. And indeed that person who is the victim, not the victim, but the relative victim, the heir of the victim, the one who has been grieved by the murder of their beloved one, they will be helped by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Okay. Next thing, also something that we have done earlier, that do not go near the property of an orphan. Same word you use here, also suggests that greed is also something. When you, It's very difficult. You will find, for example, when you manage somebody else's money, when you control somebody else's money, or for example, in a business, right? the cashier, the manager, when you're near money, when you're dealing with money, when money is flowing through your hands, passing through your hands, it gets difficult. It's difficult to control your greed. And so one way that historically people have is they've usurped the money of the weak. And one of those communities which are weak are orphans because they don't have the strength of their parents. So here the sponsor says you should not go near the property. It means that except that which is good for the orphan is spending for the sake of the orphan or in their benefit uh, until they come to the age of maturity. This is something that we've done last year as well. And you should fulfill the oaths and covenants and pledges and promises that you make. It's also something that we did before. And indeed, every single ahad that you take, you will be asked about that ahad. So what does it mean? Every single commitment, treaty, pledge, promise that we make, we have to fulfill it. Because on the Day of Judgment, we will be asked by Allah Subhanahu about it. So what does this mean? This means that whatever intentions and pledges we make, we should make them seriously. We should take them seriously. And we should remember what it is that we have pledged. And the greatest ahad that we have taken is obviously our ahad of iman with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our ahad of kalima, our ahad of shahada. La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this is also an ahad that will be asked about us. That how much of an abd of Allah subhanahu were you? How much of a follower and believer of Sayyidina Rasulullah were you? So this is an ad that we should fulfill. And the fulfillment of that ad means to live an entire life on deen. This is another thing that we have that you should fulfill the full measure when you measure and weigh with a straight balance that is fair and better at the end. 
and do not follow a thing about which you have no knowledge. Okay, what does this mean? Surely the ear, the eye, and the heart, each one of them shall be interrogated about. The first rub tears up because earlier the was mentioned of zina. You should not follow speculation. You should not follow backbiting. You shouldn't follow slander. You shouldn't follow imperfect information. You shouldn't let that. You shouldn't make that enable. You shouldn't prejudge a person, nor should you judge a person based on this type of flimsy information that is not worthy to be called knowledge. That is one meaning of this. A second thing means that you should not follow things on mere conjecture. You should not follow the first idea that comes to your mind. You have to follow grounded knowledge. Grounded knowledge in our deen, it means ilm of deen, ilm of Quran, ilm of sunnah, ilm of the ulama, ilm of the fuqaha, ilm of the mufassirun, ilm of the muhaddisin, ilm of the awliya. That is grounded knowledge. Follow grounded knowledge, established knowledge. Don't follow speculative knowledge. And surely the ear, the eye, and the heart, each one of them shall be interrogated about what it is that they used to follow. All of these things will be asked and interrogated on the Day of Judgment. Right? What did you listen to? What did you look at? What feelings did you feel? Next to you feel a series of prohibitions and don't do this and don't do this and this. Next to that, don't walk on earth in an arrogant way, in a haughty style. Don't be arrogant even in the way that you walk, right? You can neither tear the earth apart nor can you match the mountains in height. This is Allah Ta'ala almost ridiculing us, right? Allah Ta'ala almost mocking us that you're strutting proudly on this earth. You, What will you be able to do, right? Here the lesson is that Allah Ta'ala is saying that you should be careful about your zahir. Again, what I mentioned, body language, Allah Ta'ala is interested in it. Your mannerisms, Allah Ta'ala takes note of it. Your expressions, Allah Ta'ala notes it. Right? This is why the Muhaddisin have preserved the Sunnah way of walking, the Sunnah way of talking, the Sunnah way of smiling, the Sunnah way of laughing. Because in our deen we view that Sayyidina Rasulullah had the best of mannerisms, the best of expressions and body language. And we want to model and mold our zahir after his zahir. Because clearly Quran is telling us that Allah Ta'ala looks at zahir. So first of all, nobody can tell you that in Islam the zahir doesn't matter. Out of so many responses to that, this ayah is one response. What are you talking about? Allah Ta'ala is telling me in Quran about how I walk. <laughs> That's an outward thing. That's an external attribute of mine. How I walk is an external attribute of mine. Allah Ta'ala is dictating to me how I should do that. And the broader lesson I learned from this, Allah Ta'ala looks at my zahir, cares about my zahir. And I know that Allah Ta'ala sent the Prophet with a zahir in a sunnah. So the easiest way to know I'm safe is to model my zahir after his zahir. Then all of this will be taken care of. Not only will I not walk in an improper way, I won't talk in a proper way, etc., etc. Then all of these things that have been mentioned above uh, that are evil, كُلُّ ذَلَكَ كَانَ سَيِّئُهُ That each and everything that has been mentioned above, in other words, if you do the things that you, Allah Ta'ala didn't want you to do, or you don't do what Allah Ta'ala said to do, then all of that is makru, is despised, in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now here this is not the fatwa. These things are haram to do, right? Killing someone is not makru. Don't be literal in your Quran. Yes, you find people that they could be so foolish that in Quran Allah ta'ala said murder is makru and it's not haram and they can bring you these few ayahs and that none of these things are haram, they're all makru. 
Right? So it actually shows you the Fukaha when they used the word makru, they actually meant practically haram. Right? That's what they meant. Despicable and disliked and despised and displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah says all of this is that Dalaka Mimma Awha Ilaika Rambuka Minal Hikmah and all of this is O Prophet, all of this is what Allah Ta'ala, your Rabb, has revealed to you from hikmah, from the infinite wisdom that Allah Ta'ala possesses. And do not set up any other God except for Allah Subhanahu unless you should be thrown into Jahannam, reproached and rejected. So that's the classic thing that has come in him. Is it then that your Lord has chosen you people to have sons and has himself opted for females from among the angels? This is because some of the Mushrikeen of Makkah Mukarama, they said that all of the angels are the daughters of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. And they prided themselves on having sons. And they were saying this mockingly, uh, actually trying to say that they are superior to Allah SWT because look, Allah Ta'ala only has daughters, which are the angels, and we have sons. So here Allah Ta'ala is responding to that and almost mocking them back. Is it then that your Rabb has chosen you to have sons and his himself has opted only to have females who are from amongst angels? Surely you are uttering a, s- a serious statement. It means you are saying a grievous thing. It is that you utter indeed. Surely we have explained things in various ways in this Quran so that they may pay heed to the advice but increases nothing in them except aversion. So here Allah SWT is saying about such people who have descended to this level, not every unbeliever, talking about those disbelievers who have descended to such a level that they mock Allah SWT. Right? that they've descended to that level, Allah Ta'ala is saying that we have tried in so many ways to reveal our mercy to them, to invite them, to show our compassion to them, but they have refused to pay heed to that nasiha, to that tadkira, to that zikr, to that advice, to that admonishment. And in fact, the more and more they hear about Qur'an, it doesn't increase their chances, actually increases nothing in them except aversion. And yes, unfortunately, you may find people who have that. That the more they hear about deen, the more they learn about deen, the more nafrat they have. So there are people today within the Ummah, at least within the culturally speaking Muslims, who have the same attributes. That's a very dangerous thing. That's a very dangerous thing. Why? Because those are those people who Allah Ta'ala is saying is they're beyond hope. They are beyond redemption. Why? Not because Allah Ta'ala has put them that way, but that they're beyond reach of the Qur'an. They've chosen to pick themselves up and put themselves out of the reach of the message of Qur'an al-Karim. So then what else in the world is ever going to be able to reach them? So say to, now say to the other worshippers, had there been other gods along with Allah SWT, as they say, as the mushrikeen say, the polytheists say, they believe in other gods, then they would have found out a way to the Lord of the throne. Here what it is, this is a logical argument that comes, or argument that in part is an appeal to logic that Allah Ta'ala uses several times in Quran that if there had been more than one Rabb then they would have fought with one another and certainly they would have fought with Rabbul Arsh who is the great Rabb so the proof that there are not multiple gods is that these multiple gods would be fighting one another and the more sophisticated version of it goes that each god would have a will and eventually one the will of one god would be different to the will of the other so obviously one will would have to prevail. The one who is prevailed over is Nakya, so they can no longer be called a god, because to be a god means that your will absolutely prevails. So at the end of that progression, there could only be one god. Alright. Subhanahu wa ta'ala, amma yakuluna, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is absolutely free 
from any flaw and imperfection and free from being attributed with those things that they speak about Aluwan Kabira that Allah Ta'ala is exalted in his status Kabira he is immense in his might and authority and he is above every single thing that he says then Allah Ta'ala says that everything in the Saba Samawat everything in the uh, Samawat the Saba the seven firmaments or skies and the earth and all of that Waman Fi Hinnan everything that is in the seven Samawat and the earth all of those things do the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That there is nothing in the universe except that it does the tasbih and glorifies Allah ta'ala with his hamd. Now, we may not be able to understand. That's what Allah ta'ala said. But you don't understand their tasbih. And that's nothing to be perplexed about. There's so many languages in this world. We don't even understand human languages. Human beings speak probably millions of languages. And so if the plants and the animals have their own language in the sense of tasbih. And the ulama have mentioned that this tasbih is two things. One is, yes, could be a verbal vocalized tasbih. Like the chirping of the birds is a type of tasbih, right? Or it can be even just their presence and existence in obedience to the laws of Allah Subhanahu That is also a tasbih. So the tasbih of planet earth is that it rotates on its axis. And it also rotates around the orbits around the sun. That it is tasbih. Right? It doesn't have to be necessarily vocalized sound. So in that sense, every single thing that the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we may not be able to understand it, discern it, listen to it, recognize it, but it does that. إِنَّهُ kana haliman ghafura. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forbearing and all forgiving. This I've explained to you before. Halim means that being who has the ability to punish, but he withholds his might and power and right to punish. And ghafura is that being who is all Forgiving. Then Allah Ta'ala says to the Prophet that وَإِذَا karata That when you Nabi Karim Sassam, when you recite Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala says جَأَنَّ بَيْنَكَ That we place between you and between these people who are not believing in the Akhirah, these people who are beyond redemption, we place an invisible barrier between you and them. And we put covers on their hearts, barring them from understanding it. And we put deafness in their ears. And then when you refer to your Rabb alone, in Qur'an al-Karim, they turn their backs in aversion. We are fully aware of the reason for which they listen, when they listen to you, and when they are in secret consultation with one another, and when the transgressors say about the Prophet to their friends that you are following none but a bewitched man. See how they have made such ridiculous statements about you, so they have gone astray and they cannot find a way. So here Allah SWT is mentioning the thirty. First, they view the Prophet as being bewitched. They view the words and recitation of Qur'an as just some type of spell. Because they are degrading the Qur'an al-Kareem, disrespecting the Bi'a al first they did that out of their own choice. They had the option of Hidayah. They had the possibility of Hidayah. They had the choice of Hidayah. But instead, they, decide, they chose to be shows a path of disgrace and disrespect so that disgrace and disrespect doesn't continue further Allah Ta'ala puts this barrier henceforth between them and the recitation of the Prophet So don't think that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is not giving them a chance, it's over for them, where is their free will? No, they exercised their free will, they made use of their free will, they saw Sayyidina Rasulullah they heard Sayyidina Rasulullah without any barrier between them, and still their hearts refused to accept, they were so stubborn, so hard-hearted, then they started mocking the Prophet calling him a 
soothsayer and a magician and they and even things that aren't mentioned here they start physically oppressing and persecuting the Pathasam so to stop that not to stop their choice they were given the full choice they exercised the full choice and they never want to change their choice so to stop them from their further disrespect and disgrace Allah subhanahu wa puts this barrier between them and the recitation of Quran alright then one of the things they say mockingly that once we reduce to bones and dust is it then that we will be raised created anew say be you stones or iron or any creation you deem harder in your hearts what does this mean Allah subhanahu wa is saying that yes when you are bones, you will be resurrected. In fact, if you want, you could make yourself steel and I would still resurrect you. You can make yourself stones and I would still resurrect you. You can pick the most hardest of things. Bones are still natural. Bones are still human, right? And from our sense, genetic and DNA, right? But Allah Ta'ala is saying in the Quran, and this is the answer to people who take genetics as their God. No, Allah Ta'ala is not confined by genetic rules that Allah Ta'ala is going to necessarily have to reconstruct and resurrect the human being from DNA fragments that is in the person's grave. Maybe that's how you would go about it. If, you were, if some scientist was asked to resurrect, Allah Ta'ala is not confined to do that at all. And that's what doesn't be you stones or iron. You could be something else altogether. Even then Allah Ta'ala can resurrect you. Any creation that you deem even harder, what do you think is harder than a bone? Stone? What's harder than a stone? Iron is something that is harder than that. You could make yourself anything you want, Allah Ta'ala will still resurrect you. That's what Allah Ta'ala is saying to them in Quran. Thereupon they will ask, who will bring us back? Say, the one who created you for the first time, the one who brought you forth in the first place, is going to bring you forth again. So they will shake their heads before you. Yani, who is you here? They will shake their heads before Sayyidina Rasulullah Right? They are the naysayers of the beloved messenger Wasallam. And then what will they say? When will that be? When will that day come? So say to them, maybe it is near. Maybe it's not so far away. By near, didn't mean literal. Right? Because literal, obviously, 1400 years has passed. Near sometimes in Arabic language, basically those things that have passed, put it this way, those things that have certainly passed are relegated to the past Sometimes the word far is used to describe them. And those things that will certainly happen in the future, they're called near. Not because they're time proximity, but because they're definitely going to happen and they haven't happened yet, so that's why they're called near. This is an Arabic, which is not um, properly being conveyed maybe in the translation, but you have to say the word near for Qareeb, right? But Qareeb in Arabic can also be used not for something that's going to happen soon in time but something that hasn't happened and will definitely happen. That's why we say it's near. In other words, in English, if you wanted to use the, the proper English word for this inevitable, impending, right? It's impending because it's inevitable. It's impending because it's going to definitely happen and it hasn't happened yet. That's what it means. It will be on a day when he will call you and you will respond praising him and you will think you did not stay on the earth for but a short period of time. So that is the second way that when it actually happens, right, when you're in that process, like anything that you know is going to happen in the future, it will seem very near to you. For example, even when we die, right now for all of us our death seems a way distant future. But believe me, when you actually are in the clutch of death, when you're in the moments of dying, it will seem extremely near to you. <laughs> it will seem that bus just this is it actually all I have done is died my whole life just was a second and now I'm in the throes and the clutches of death 
So the same thing when a person is resurrected by Allah on the Day of Judgment. Their feeling when they're in the process of resurrection, their whole life will be like a flash for them. And this will be the, the, the reality of that imminent resurrection will face them and confront them when they actually are resurrected and brought back to life. Tell my servants that they should speak that which is best. Surely shaitan creates discord amongst them. Indeed shaitan is an open enemy to insan. Alright, so there are two things going on here. Number one. That number one, that in terms of again speech, this is Zahir. Again, Allah Ta'ala is showing our Zahir. That when we speak, whether it's speaking in any and every engagement, any and every conversation, we should speak with what is Asan, the most noble, the most virtuous, the most beautiful, the most excellent. And one rub there is that one way Shaitan operates is he pollutes our words he pollutes our verbal dealings with another he makes us speak harsh words foul words inappropriate words hurtful words in some way he tries to twist our lisan our tongue and so here Allah Ta'ala is saying that two things that number one between the ibad kulli ibadi between the ibad shaitan is going to try to cause uh, discord and sedition between them and secondly, generally speaking, he is an open and manifest enemy to all of insan. So what's the form of enmity? Is He wants that Muslims should be unhappy with each other, should be fighting each other, should have harsh words for one another. That those harsh words should lead to harsh feelings, which they inevitably do. Then the harsh words and harsh feelings almost often, almost always lead to harsh actions between one another. This is shaitan's wish, right? So we should simply understand that whenever we have exchanged harsh words with another, we are fulfilling the wish of shaitan. We're not being just, we're not vindicating ourselves, we are doing nothing other than making shaitan happy. That's all we do when we have these harsh words with another. And your Rabb knows best and knows better uh, about every single thing uh, that is about every single being and whomsoever is in the samawat, in the earth, in the skies, in the firmament, and on the earth. Alright. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions another thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has benefited. Uh, I skipped a line. Rabbakum a'lumu bikum in yasha yarhamukum. That your Rabb knows best about you, and if He wants, He will send mercy on you. And if He wants, O ini in yasha, you adhibkum, and if He wants, He can punish you. Wama arsalnaka alayhim wakila, and Allah Ta'ala says that we did not send you the Prophet over on them as a wakil. So, what does this mean? First of all, immediate rub that when we misuse our words, due to the effect of shaitan, even, it's up to Allah Ta'ala. If he wants, he can send his mercy on us. And if he wants, he can punish us for that. So important lesson is, even if we do something under the influence of the enmity and whisperings of shaitan, we're still liable to punishment. We still might be punished for that. We're not off the hook because shaitan sent waswasa because Allah Ta'ala has taught us that shaitan is going to do waswasa. He is your enemy and you have to ward yourself against him. Second, it can be a more general thing. That generally speaking, anytime we sin or make a mistake, it's Allah's choice whether He wants to accept our 
whether he wants to send his mercy on us or whether he wants to punish us for that sin. Alright. Then Allah SWT mentions a separate thing that Allah Ta'ala knows best about every single person but every single being who is in the heavens, the firmaments, the skies and on earth. And then that some of the Anbiya we have favored some over others. This is also something that we discussed last year. Right? It may mean favored some over with revelation and some did not receive revelation. May have favored some with some bounties in this world, others didn't receive bounties in this world. Also means rutba and qurbad Allah SWT. So in that sense, obviously, Sayyidina Rasulullah is the one who's been the most favored. But here Allah Ta'ala mentions one thing, Wa'atina Dawuda Zabura, and Sayyidina Dawud Islam was favored by being given the Zabur. Now, where is this coming from? What's the context? So it's coming back to the Bani Israel. That look, we did favor your Prophet, the Prophet who was sent to you, right? By giving him the Zabur, by giving him scripture, by giving him Wahi, by giving him Kitab, by giving him teachings and injunctions for you. Alright. Then uh, Allah SWT says that, say, that call those whom you assume to be gods beside him while they have no power to remove distress from you nor change it. So again, back to the Mushrikeen, that those who you be- those people, deities, false gods that you believe in, that you call on them, call upon them. Call upon them and see what they can do for you. Those whom they invoke to themselves seek the means of access to the Lord, as to which of them becomes the closest, and they hope for his mercy and fear his punishment. The punishment of your is really something to be feared. There is no town, but we are to destroy it before the day of judgment, or to punish it with severe punishment. That is what stands written in the book. Alright. Here, this is very important. I have to read this part to you in Arabic. Alright, this word wasila. Wasila is translated as means of access. Wasila means a way to reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they have to seek a way to reach their Rabb. They have to seek a way to reach their Rabb. And those who are the closest to Allah SWT, ayyuhum akrab, those who are the most closest to Allah SWT, what do they do? They're in hope of His mercy and they fear His punishment. This means that no matter how close you get, there's no daraja of qurb that you get to Allah SWT where you stop fearing Him because the akrab, the ones who are the closest to Allah SWT, Allah Taala is saying they still have fear. They fear. At most they hope for the mercy. They don't feel that because we're close we earn the mercy, because we're close we deserve the mercy. No, the Akrab still yearns and hopes for the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and also fears the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? Because the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is indeed an intense punishment, is a fearful punishment, is a punishment that should make someone distraught and the closer a person gets, the closer a person gets to Allah Subhanahu the more they realize how worthy of being punished they are, how that, that makes them more fearful of Allah Subhanahu All right. Then the second thing that Allah Subhanahu said, that every single town community will be destroyed. What does that mean? On the one hand, there are communities that have been destroyed historically. You can see ruins of Aztec civilization, Taxila, whatever. There's so many civilizations like that. And that will continue over time, as long as earth lives. 
right? And then whichever communities still last and their towns and cities and settlements and civilizations are still around at the time of the end of the world, then if nothing else but the Day of Judgment will come on them and then they will be folded up along with the rest of the earth when it is folded up at the end of time. So the point Allah SWT is making is that all civilization, all settlements, all towns, all cities will come to an end. Everything that we see will come to an end. Everything will become history by the time the Day of Judgment comes or by the coming of the Day of Judgment itself. Nothing made us refrain from sending the signs demanded by the pagans except that the earlier people had rejected them. For example, we gave Thamud the she-camel as an eye-opener then they did wrong to her. This also came in detail earlier. We do not send signs but as a warning. Okay. Here the Mushrikin, they wanted the Apostle to display some ayah, some sign, some miracle. And it was a sign and miracle that they dictated. Not something, that's something that Allah Ta'ala Himself sends a sign and a miracle as a, sends a miracle as a sign to guide the people. Here they were dictating that this should happen and this should happen. So this Allah Subhanahu refused to do. He refused to do. And the Allah Ta'ala cites that look, they have in previous communities and we did the story of Thamud last year that they would refuse the signs or they would fail to heed, put it that way, the signs that Allah Subhanahu sends. And that's what Allah Subhanahu is saying, that we do not send signs but as a warning. The whole purpose of sending signs is that people heed them. When Allah is saying, when I already know they're not going to heed it, there's no point for me to send the sign. Because the only reason to send the sign was that they wouldn't heed it. Remember when we said to you that your Lord encompasses all human beings and we did not make the vision we showed to you but a test for the people and the tree curse in the Quran as well. And we warned them yet it adds nothing to them but enormous rebellion. Alright, this is the vision of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is a, I don't know, but I'll just mention very briefly to you that Sahaba Ikram even had a disagreement whether Nabi Yukrim physically saw Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with his eyes on the incident of Miraj or saw him from the eyes of his heart, right? To be honest, you know, for people like us, we wouldn't even really fully appreciate the difference of that, Right? Seeing Allah subhanahu with your physical eyes, your basarat, or seeing Allah subhanahu with your basirat. And, but this concept of vision, right, which came, which comes in the later passages that we, I think we tried to show you in the screen about miraj, and here that is mentioned. But it's something Allah Ta'ala has mentioned, right? So one could possibly apply a concept which some of the theologians have, it's called bila kaif. Bilakif means that I believe whatever Allah Ta'ala is saying and I don't claim to know nor do I aspire to know the details and mechanisms of that. For example, I believe that Nabi Akram saw Allah SWT and I'm not going to go into the details of whether he saw him with the physical eye, the spiritual heart, both, something else altogether because I don't need to know the kaif, I don't need to know the how of it. I just need to know and believe that the Prophet did see Allah SWT. Right, but it's a test for the people. A test in what sense? It will test for the monophics, right? Because some of the monophics, when this happened, they thought that okay, well, this now it's clear, right? They actually thought they felt vindicated that now nobody's going to fall. And that's why some of the kufar actually went to say Abu Bakr first, because they said okay, well, now even the number one follower is not going to be able to accept this story. And Alhamdulillah, mashallah. Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq showed <laughs> why he was in there. Even the kuffar, ajeeb hai. Even kuffar ki pechaan hai. Or humare kuch grow hai. 
جو حسین و مکر انکار کرتے ہیں ایون کفار مشرقین ریئلائز دیٹ سین و بکر از دا نمبر ون اینڈ دیٹس وائی آفٹر دس انسیڈنٹ وی شوڈ گو اسٹریٹ ٹو دا نمبر ون بیکاز ناؤ دا نمبر ون وڈنٹ رائٹ ایکسیپٹ دا پروفٹ وسلم رائٹ سو Yes, so Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, well, no, he believed in what the Prophet, again, Bilal Kaif, he didn't, he said, but the Prophet said it, I believe it. How he went at that point, because he hadn't met the Prophet some yet, right? That's what these people were telling him. He said, but the Prophet said it, I believe it. He didn't know the Kaif of it. That's later the Prophet gave the Kaif, Burak came, took me, right? All that happened, I went to Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq and showed this path of this deek. that you can become a Siddiq Bilal Kaif. Without knowing the details, you can still reach that level of the snake.